podcast is brought to you by uh, 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 Here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'ma get medieval on your ass. You're shut to this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the light. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service, where we help rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I am the Reverend Scott K, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. It's April, and that means we've reached our fourth stop on this chronological journey through Tarantino's filmography. So hold on to your asses, because we're about to take a healthy bite out of the tasty fucking burger that is his P.S. David Resistance, Pulp Fiction. But before we bring out the gimp, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast our third guest from across the pond in merry old England, a guest that nobody asked for, and one half of the duo that is the podcast nobody asked for, Mr. Ian Harris. Welcome, Lord Harris, and may Tarantino be with you always. Thank you. Thank you. I'm hoping I didn't butcher the last name. It is Harris, correct? It's all good. It is, it is Harris, yeah. For a, for okay, a brief good. moment, I thought you were going to introduce me as a gimp. And it's like, oh, that's a, that's a good start to a podcast. <laughs> well, listeners won't see what you see, but I'm in my basement. And a couple of people who have been on have been like, what's going on? Like a murder basement. And so sometimes I, I thought about just like even putting like a, a statue back there, just dressed as the gimp, just, in, just off in the corner where people can kind of go, is that the gimp? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. Because also it would be so... It would be so kind of weird that I don't think I would comment on it. <laughs> like, because like if, if you say, hey, is that a gimp? And it's not, the judgment's then on me. <laughs> no, it's just my son. He's just, just yeah. he's just going through a phase. He's going through a, he's going through a bondage phase. You know, what are you gonna do? You gotta, <laughs> let, gotta let these things run their course. <laughs> but as I said, you are our third. Technically, you're the fourth guest I've had, but I've had a, a repeat guest, but everyone I've spoken to has been from. Our former owners, the uh, the UK. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm bringing everyone back into the fold. One of the reasons I connected better with some people in the UK, but I like the different view of what Tarantino and movies, how they landed over there as opposed to here. I like mm. to see them from different eyes because Americans were a little bombastic and think we're amazing and all that stuff. But I like to get, you know, a different view from people who you know, didn't get to see it in the same theater that I got to see it in. And like for over there, you guys had Reservoir Dogs first and Reservoir Dogs really became big because of the UK. We hardly got, uh, you know, a blip of it. And Tarantino really makes his big entrance in America with this film that we're going to talk about. Although, you know, True Romance, for those, you know, who are big fans, you know, started to get that groundswell from that and realizing, oh, who's this Tarantino fella? But it was Pulp Fiction that really did it here. So how did Tarantino land for you guys in your neck of the woods? Yeah, so P Pulp Fiction especially, 
is always an interesting one when thinking of kind of like outside of the US. While um, researching for this episode, I found like a load of articles on references in the movie, like homages and things that Quentin Tarantino threw into it. And half of them would not have known was an homage because we wouldn't have grown up with those films or those products or like the adverts and things like that. So there's a lot of stuff which completely would have sailed over our heads, which is, it, it's fascinating when you think about it. But Pulp Fiction's just really good, isn't it? <laughs> well, as we were talking right before we start recording, and, you know, I don't think this is hyperbole by any stretch of the imagination, but I truly do feel that Pulp Fiction is the most important film since Citizen Kane. I think it truly changed the landscape of film, especially in the 90s moving forward. It is the birth of the independent renaissance. A24, and I will be completely honest, I can't stand when people say A24 vibes of the A24 over-the-top mm. people. That really chafes my ass. Um, but that being said, A24 isn't what it is without the dawn of Miramax, which really is at the birth of this. And I understand Miramax was run by the piece of shit Weinsteins, but at the time, Miramax was the original A24. It was the place that put yep. out all the independents. It birthed a lot of great filmmakers who are now, it's funny, they're now considered like more of the older guard, like where uh, when Tarantino and Rodriguez and Paul Thomas Anderson and the Coens, when they were all kind of coming forward, you would look back, it was like Scorsese, it was Coppola, it was Lucas, you know, it's all those guys kind of, they were the originals with Spielberg and now this was the new group and now they're kind of in that window where they're looking at the Eggers and the so-ons as the new group and they're now the older guy. Well, you know, yeah. Coppola's got to spend his own money to fund his own films now. It's, it's insane. That's how that's all happening. It's wild, isn't it? It's um, whether you think it's his best film or not it is definitely his most influential oh 100 um, like you, like you said it is a very easy argument to make that cinema wouldn't have been the same if pulp fiction hadn't been made there's just so many kind of different aspects to it as well like it's the postmodern non-linear storytelling the fact it was relatively low budget as well yeah so eight million dollars or something like that yeah ridiculous yeah, and, it, and, it, and it made all the money. <laughs> it was <laughs> crazy critically acclaimed as well, which I always kind of forget because, well, well, you don't forget that it's critically acclaimed, but Pulp Fiction reeks of a film that didn't win anything. Right? Yes, like it, yes. It I was about to like, say that. <laughs> yeah. There are two movies that didn't win the year that that Oscar came up. And look, I, I'm a fan of Tom Hanks, and Forrest Gump's a fun little movie. Forrest Gump is not the best movie to come out in the year of 1994. It is not better than The Shawshank Redemption, and it is not better than Pulp Fiction. Those two movies are far superior to Forrest Gump in every single stretch of the imagination. The acting is far superior than Tom Hanks playing this uh, befuddled young man who may not have the most intelligence and you know it's staggering because most people barely remember Forrest Gump except for mm. you know run Forrest run that kind of little yeah. funny stuff where Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption are you know held at such a high level and where it's funny where Pulp Fiction seemed to be like introducing pop culture back into the vernacular outside of Star Wars I can't think of another film that is you know more referenced in pop culture than those two like I don't want to call them franchises but those two touchstones in film star wars is a huge touchstone for pop culture and then 
you bring in Pulp Fiction and it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's how many TV shows, movies have emulated it or just even thrown in little references as nods to that movie. Well, the, um, obviously because it, it's a thing that exists, uh, the Simpsons did a Pulp Fiction episode. Yes. Yes. So last week I was listening to, uh, Critical Role, the Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Yes. And they referenced Pulp Fiction in just a throwaway line. Yeah. It's turned up on albums I've listened to, TV, yes. books, like every single. And it's not just, uh, it's a pop culture kind of touch point that everybody gets as well, which is crazy for a film that is so kind of out there. It, it was weird kind of rewatching it because it is so influential and so well done. It's very easy to forget how good it is. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think some people forget that's so good that they pick at it because it's so good. You know, it's almost like it's yeah, like you guys make fun of Tom Brady, which, which I totally got in the pocket. <laughs> but when something is so good, you know, sometimes you get tired of hearing about it. And so then people start to hate on it. But it's always a lot of times in that rear view, when you look back on it, you realize just another two years from now, it's going to be 30 years in the rear view that movie came out. And so it's, it's shocking, but it have that kind of longevity 30 years later to still be a movie that I can't think of another movie that has come out that has been as lasting in the mind or even in the, the film vernacular that outside of Star Wars which came out 20, 25 years before that. Some movies, you always enjoy them, but not where the point where everyone, you can just say it and people go, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, there's yeah. very few movies like that. But it also means that because it's been parodied and lampooned everywhere, even if people haven't seen Pulp Fiction, <laughs> they know all of the references. So there's, uh, you know, because those people <laughs> so do true. exist. There are people who haven't seen Pulp Fiction, but it, it's they will still get the, uh, again, anything which is done as like vignettes and non-linear. It's like, oh, that's a that's them doing a Pulp Fiction thing or the dance scene. It's like, oh, that's a, that's a Pulp Fiction ripoff. The soundtrack it, it is everything people know is from Pulp Fiction. And to uh, just to call that to something you said before, while researching this, I found out that Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption came out on the same day. Insane. And they both were, I think, nominated for seven Academy yeah. Awards each as well. And they're both in the... And all Tarantino got was writing. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and they're so... both in the uh, IMDb top 10 as well. Yes. And... Forrest Gump's where we where we decided to go, but I'm I'm, well, I'm very very loud <laughs> in my uh, critique of the Oscars. I haven't forgiven the them. Oscars yeah. are garbage. I haven't forgiven They're them garbage. since uh, Shakespeare in Love. I was just gonna bring that up. There's no fucking <laughs> way Shakespeare in Love is a better movie than Saving Private Ryan. It's uh, in any stretch of any imagination. There is no. I'm not. I'm not saying it's. Uh, I'm not saying it's a bad film. But no. It's not, but it's, it's not, not the <laughs> film of the yeah, year. It's not Saving <laughs> Private Ryan. No, it's not. It's a cute little movie. I, I give it its thing, whatever. But it's it's just like Forrest Gump. They're both, ah, oh, they're cute, fun little movies. But they're not as invigorating. They, they don't have that impact that those mm. movies had. You know, whether you like them or not, uh, the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, you're strapped to your seat. That mm. landing on the beach at Normandy is the closest any of us who would never in that war could ever come to knowing what that's like, you oh, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for, for Gwyneth Paltrow and Ben F, I don't know when the fucking award, it's such a slap in the face to all the people from across the world who fought World War II. Yeah. You know, it's just like, yeah, you had a tough time, you know? And we feel real bad yeah. for Jewish people, but did you see Shakespeare yeah. in Love? It's but so cute. Ro like, Romeo and Juliet you. was really difficult to write, guys. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, no, the Oscars, I, I, I do love that. 
in the same breath, I will say that they're completely pointless while also getting annoyed people didn't win. It's like, you can't have both. I know what you mean. <laughs> Either they're completely pointless or you're annoyed someone didn't win. But I will happily be a hypocrite and just run with both of them. But... Well, it allows me to bring up a point I want to talk to you about. I didn't mean to just jump no, into Pulp no Fiction. Nick Cage, you're a huge fan of his, as am I. And I believe in your one of your more recent podcasts, you were doing it as the nominations were being announced. Yes. And like you, I could not fucking believe mm. that Nick Cage was not nominated or the movie for Pig. Yeah. It is a travesty. It is a fucking travesty. Yeah, so, he so was absolutely spectacular in that film. And I have seen some of the people who have been in it, and they've been good. But I honestly don't think anyone, and I know feels a little jaded because of my love for the man, but his performance in Pig was unbelievable. It was amazing. It was beautifully done. Yeah, I mean, I'm literally wearing uh, Nicolas Cage, Willie's Wonderland t-shirt as we're talking. I'm, I'm jealous because I tried to get that <laughs> shirt earlier and it's, it's sold out. I am, a, I am a huge fan of Nicolas Cage. Every year on my birthday, I will watch a Nicolas Cage film. That's kind of the the area we're looking at. So when Pig came out, and it was horribly mismarketed as well, because everyone, it was billed as like John Wick with a pig, and it's not. It was, yes, yes. The John Wick trilogy, I think, is the closest to a perfect trilogy we've had in a very long time. But that is an argument for a different day. Um, <laughs> pig isn't John Wick with a pig. It is a very detailed no. look at grief and loneliness and things like that yeah so whenever i was we watched it uh, so graham my co-host and i watched it in uh cinema in london um and everybody knew we'd gone to watch it because of course we have and a load of people messaged me and was like oh like is it good and i was like it's like seriously it is by far the film of the year so far it is the best performance Nicolas Cage has done in like a very long time. And without fail, everybody's response was, yeah, but you're just saying that because it's Nicolas Cage. It's like, no, 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 no. Like people forget, because to be fair, and we kind of, we were talking about this before, Nicolas Cage has been in a lot of shit. He has. Not going to pretend <laughs> yes. his uh, filmography is flawless. <laughs> no. Nope. He is a very good actor when he wants to be. I think he's like, we were saying, I think he's a great actor regardless of what he's in. When he's surrounded by people who are as creative and actually care about the movies that they're in. Pig could very easily have been a shit movie. Oh yeah. If yeah, only yeah. he's invested in it and he doesn't have the cast that's around him. Then it just looks like this weird guy who's lost a pig and you can go like, what the fuck's this about? But when he is surrounded by great actors and people who care, they act with him. Yeah. And then you get these great performances and these great movies. When no one's helping out, he looks so out of place because everyone else is just kind of, you know, sleepwalking through the film. And he's trying things like he's going out of his mind for things and trying to actually bring a character to life as opposed to just being like, like we we're saying, like the Bruce Willis, or yeah. as you mentioned on your podcast recently, like Liam Neeson, just being the same guy, cut and paste, put him in the new movie. And now he's this guy doing the same thing yeah. in, in this scenario, you know, and Nicolas Cage doesn't do that. And I think if anyone gets a chance and you go see coming up in April when this comes out a couple of weeks after this comes out, go see his new movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Mm. I think you will get an idea of what the fuck we're talking about is how he will, even in the trailer, he leans into his own eccentricities, yeah. he knows, but he also is going to put on a great performance because he's got great actors around him. You now have a generation of directors who have come of age who are kind of in on the Nicolas Cage joke that they get he's uh, 
he's an over-the-top kind of guy, which means that in the last couple of years, you started to get really interesting films coming out, like Mandy, again, My favorite Wonderland. Oh, it's phenomenal. Color Out of Space. Oh, amazing. And then Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. He's now randomly decided he's going to do Westerns. Even the shirt you're currently wearing, Willie's Wonderland, he is... Gloriously genius in that movie. Yeah, so like it's, he, it's so joyous to watch him perform without saying a fucking word. It's amazing. Yeah, and I don't know. Uh, I I don't know whether how much of that is him accepting he's Nicolas Cage. How much of it is maybe he's paid that tax bill off, so he doesn't have to go for anything that's offered to him. But the the last four or five years has been. Very interesting. I feel like a renaissance. I yeah. feel like he's also found his niche doing more horror yeah. as well. But it's similar to well, what I was talking about on my podcast about Liam Neeson, where he's done so much crap. So, like again, if you hadn't seen Mandy and all you had seen was all of the shit Nicolas Cage did from like 2007, <laughs> if you try to explain it to them, they're not going to watch it. It's like it's a, very, it is, very fair. Yeah, it's just it's just over two hours. The first part, the first half is basically like a synth music video and Nicolas Cage is in it. It doesn't sound great, but it is fucking phenomenal. It's unreal. It's unreal. All right. So every time I bring someone on, I ask them questions. And since you are new to the podcast, and I thank you for that, we'll start with your questions. Number one, are you a huge Tarantino fan? And if not, can you please fuck off? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't add that to you when I sent it to you. <laughs> I just slided in. Uh, yes, I, I am a huge Tarantino fan. Tarantino as like a term is an interesting one as well because it is both a person <laughs> and like a style of and filmmaking. The There's a yeah. Tarantino verse. Yeah, so I, exactly. I, I think I am I am more a fan of Tarantino's films than I am Tarantino. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm, I'm in the similar boat. I mean, I, I like the man, but he can sometimes be hard to listen to. I'm not going to yeah. lie. Sometimes yeah. he's like, okay. But he's also so, like, if you get to listen to the Pure Cinema podcast and when he's on, like, they'll have a conversation about movies they found over the year. They always do at the end of the year. And he'll come on. And this year they came on with Roger Avery. And they'll have, like, a list of movies that they just kind of came upon. He does not just know the movie. He knows who acted it and why they acted in it and how he got into those movies. just like, you're fucking blown away. Like, the guy... If his voice wasn't so weird to listen to, <laughs> the guy's a fucking genius when it comes to film. You know, like, I feel like I know quite a bit about film, but I'm a fucking peasant compared to him. When you just listen to him, like, he knows what companies they were working for, why they ended up going to this country to make these films. And he's like, holy shit. So he was on a couple of, I can't check because I think they're now like behind a paywall. Have you ever listened to the rewatchables? I have not. So it's a, it's a ringer podcast where basically okay. each episode they cover a film which isn't necessarily good, but it's rewatchable. Mm-hmm. So uh, films you can go back to. And he was on there a couple of times. And like you said, just like the stuff that he comes off out with about film history off the top of his head. It's like someone will reference a niche 1960s Western and he'll be like, oh, it's this. It was actually filmed on the lot next door to this other thing. And then he'll tell you what he also yeah, made. Yeah, yeah. And he went to this school. It's it's, it's the, the guy. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he, he knows his shit, which I think then also... All of his choices as a director and a writer then suddenly make sense. And it's yes, like, yes, a hundred percent. Yes, you know you can say what he wants. People say, "Oh, he steals." Nothing's new in the sun. Everyone steals. All the great steal from everybody. But he just he just does it in a way that is better. You know, like oh, yeah, he yeah, takes yeah. your ingredients, he puts them together, and he comes out with a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. Other people can take the same ingredients, and it's a shit show. Speaking of shit jokes, what was your gateway drug into the Tarantino verse? So what was the movie that got you into Tarantino? 
I was trying to think about this because I definitely saw Pulp Fiction when I was far too young, but I think it was Reservoir Dogs. So I, okay, I that, think that does make sense since you are from the yeah, UK. Yeah. It does make sense because like you guys got to see it in midnight showings hmm. and like I'm very jealous of that. So like where you're jealous about the fact that things went over your head from Pulp Fiction. You know, I've since seen Reservoir Dogs in theaters, but in like re-releases, yeah, yeah. but to be there when it first happened, I will never have that. Uh, I will never have that in my bag. Yeah. So I, I think that was my first exposure to Tarantino and it is an incredible like first movie. Like it, it's every, it really it, is. It, it yes. really and going back to it now as well, it really kind of signposts where he's going. Agreed. But it's always interesting watching uh, early films of directors who have a very specific voice. So you have it with Wes Anderson as well. Yes, watching his Bottle first Rocket. films. Yeah, it's like so. This is it isn't comparable to what you would go on to do, but there are little snippets of it where it's like so. Uh, the use of music in Reservoir Dogs is a big one. Where it's like, ah, I see, and you're now going to run with this through everything yes, you yes, do. Yes, for, for every, yes, it's just for every movie you do. It's yeah. just perfecting the little bits of it. Yeah. And yeah, hell of a film. Amazing film. To know how much we like it, go back to episode one. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite Tarantino movie, and why is it Death Proof? Favorite? I think it is Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I don't know why. So I, I am very uh, picky. So I have like a letterboxed thing and I've borderline obsessively rated films I've watched over like the last <laughs> however long I've had IMDb for. And I'm very picky with what I give a 10 out of 10. And Reservoir Dogs is like one of like the 15 that I've given uh, a 10 to. And I just think it is, I can't think of a single thing that I would change about the film. I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. I think mm -hmm. it is it is basically perfect. Like from uh, and it's again, love Tarantino, but you don't have to make every film two and a half, three hours long. <laughs> and Re Res Reservoir <laughs> Dogs runs in at like an hour 40 and it's very true. It is, it is perfect. And uh yeah, I I can't yeah, no, get you're enough right. of it. Yeah, very true. I would say on that though, there are some that go long, but I have never I'm never sitting in the theater, and when it hits like the two and a half hour mark, or when it ends, I go, "Jesus Christ, that was on!" Like I've never oh, yeah. felt that yeah, way. Yeah. His ability to tell a story, even though you know, I was like you said, Reservoir Dogs, he does it in under a hundred minutes, just about, and then you can go to almost a three-hour epics. But each time, I always feel like, "Wow," you know, like like the story moved yeah, along yeah, yeah, at yeah, a pace, yeah. and I was sucked in the whole time, and I didn't even realize time was passing. Where there are some movies you get into and you're like, it's like an hour and a half. You're like, Jesus, yeah. just only an hour in. Like, I got 30 more minutes. Like, this thing is taking forever. We've all watched Waterworld. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah. Tarantino is very good at making long films not appear like long films. <laughs> yes. But a lot of time for Reservoir Dogs being 100 minutes. And yeah, I just, there, there is, like, even, even with Pulp Fiction, there, there are a select few things which I think it could have done without. But Reservoir Dogs, I can't think of a single thing that I would change about that film. I will never hear someone tell me a movie of his and be like, that's the wrong answer, because yeah. I love... Clearly, I'm... <laughs> clearly, I it'd, the be, it'd, be, so, it'd be weird if clearly, you didn't. Clearly, it'd be weird. I'm like, I'm only really, yeah. I'm really passionate about just this movie, the rest of them... Welcome, uh, welcome <laughs> to the Quentin Tarantino is okay podcast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's just all right. Pulp Fiction and everything else. like... <laughs> In your opinion, what is his most underappreciated film? So underappreciated, I have two answers. So I thought I would go for 
a film he directed and then also a film that he wrote. Okay. Because, you know, obviously you have like Tarantino's 10 and stuff this like that. This is the Tarantino verse. Yeah. There's 12 of them. Yeah. Doing them all. So as a matter of fact, now that you're on, this will be only the second movie he's directed. Yeah. We've just done two yeah. that he wrote. So films he actually directed, Death Proof gets a bad rap. And it doesn't deserve. I love it. Death Proof so good. But I'm not. I'm not saying it's a masterpiece. I'm not saying it, no. It's, by no stretch. Everyone talks like it's this steaming pile of crap, and it's not. It Mm-mm, like now I'm close. Maybe it's like I. I know it didn't land well here, but also we similar to what we were saying at the beginning. Um, we didn't have Grindhouse stuff here. Like we didn't have the double bills and the drive-in theaters and stuff like that. So it was basically an homage to something we don't have so outside of a very set kind of pop culture group in america some of it is going to fall flat elsewhere and i think it is very interestingly and very well the first half of the film is basically him successfully doing the plot of the film and then the second (laughs) half of the film is what would usually be like your entire traditional horror movie well I, I always feel like that first half if you notice all the mistakes and stuff that are intentional that are part of the grindhouse experience that beamer experience like you know you'll see him dolly back and you'll feel it you'll see yeah. hear the camera bump a table and like all the intentional mistakes happen in that first half which is kind of like a stalker slasher film yeah. and then the second half becomes a stalker car film where yeah. you know what's really his his homage to the white lightning and all those other films that he loved as a kid and then it's like, you know, car chases them. They're just smashing into each other. And, like, there's so few mistakes until they get into that end yeah. fight. If you slow it down, like, the, he'll take different cuts and, the, you know, the dialogue's not matching yeah. up and the punching and stuff. But for a true film buff, it's a beautiful, oh, yeah. crafted movie. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, I love it. And then um, underappreciated that he was involved in uh, a lot of people forget that he wrote from Dust Till Dawn. And From Dust Till Dawn is an incredible film. And acted in it. And that's next month's episode, as a yeah, matter of fact. acted, inverted commas. Well, he, well he, yeah. He wasn't, <laughs> he, he wasn't great in it. Let, let, let's let's put it that. But I, I love yes. From Dust Till Dawn. I, it's a great movie. It's a fun movie. It's well, amazing. I was once talking to a friend, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, ages ago and found out they'd never heard of it. So we immediately watched it because... One of my favorite movie viewing experiences ever is them not knowing we were watching a vampire movie. You know, be, being in the theater. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what a surprise it was. It, 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 so see, seeing their reaction to, and then suddenly it's a horror movie. <laughs> like after, yes. after what is actually like a very effective like heist crime thriller oh, for the first part of the film yes. as well. And then just immediately tone shifts. It's like, yep, look, this is... This and you great. get introduced to Earl McGraw, mm-hmm. but you don't realize you're at the end of Earl McGraw's yeah. run. You yeah, have yeah. no idea that this is the end of Earl McGraw. You're going to get the beginning of Earl McGraw from later on. Uh, it's, yeah, it is. I Yeah, I have a lot of time from Dust Till Dawn. Great film. Great film. All right, here's the big one. Who is your all-time favorite character in the Tarantinoverse that covers all 12 of his films? The nine directed, the three written, one of which we've just discussed. So it, it was a surprisingly, well, not surprisingly, I knew this was going to be a really difficult question because immediately I was kind of drawn to one person and then I decided, oh, let's check a couple of other like lists people have ranked. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, forgot about them. <laughs> forgot about them. It's, I think it's Hans Lander. He's been a picked before and it's, it's a damn yeah. good answer because Christoph Waltz plays Hans Lander to a team. Well, that's, that, that's the thing, yeah. It was so uh, Jules was very close second. Jules just really because too, yeah. I think some of the both of them have probably the best dialogue Tarantino's written. 
Like, really? I would agree. Yeah, they, they really sink their teeth into well, it. Hans Lander, solely from the strength of basically the the opening 20 minutes, um, the once upon a time in occupied France. Yeah, the once upon a time in like, occupied yeah, Nazi it, France. Yeah. It is a masterclass of how to build tension in a in a movie. Have you ever seen a glass of milk be so oh. terrifying? Oh, yeah. And I've also never seen a, a strudel look so... Uh, so nice. So it's that setup in that part of the movie. Well, we'll jump ahead of ourselves. You and your partner will yeah, hopefully be yeah. joining me. We will be doing Inglorious Bastards. We'll get a chance to really dive into it. But it's that tension of the beginning of the film that when he gets the strudel and he's sitting there, he's like, wait for the mm. cream. And then they're eating and he's like looking at it like, I have a question for you. And he's got that yeah. look on his face. And you're like, oh, he fucking knows. And it's like, I forgot what I was going to say. He just is able to build tension and go between moods. It's... Yeah, no, Hans Landa is, I said it, I think our last podcast, or maybe with Petra, I forget which one, second or third episode, but I said, I think he's more frightening than Hitler himself. And I don't mean like Hitler's like some great guy, but as far as being menacing and, you know, Hitler just seemed to be like this really piece of shit guy who was throwing a temper chance and didn't get his way. So now he's going to take it yeah. out on a whole bunch of different yeah. people where Hans Landa is a very sociopathic, very thought that out, is, you know, yeah. beginning of the movie, he likes the fact that people know his name is the Jew hunter. But then at the end, when he's talking to Aldo, he doesn't like the fact that he's got that name. Like it's such a, like a jump, like, like it's almost like he wants the man to be afraid of him, but then he's looking for Aldo's, you know, approval to be on the same yeah. level yeah. of, you know, appreciation. Well, it's, it's, it's just nothing. I don't think there's anything more terrifying than somebody that intelligent who is showing no qualms about what he's doing. Like, you, you get one like he's it's not even like arguably you could say he's not even like a sociopath or a psychopath. It's not like he's he, he just seems to be intent on this is this is he likes to do his yeah, job as yeah, he like, says. He says he's good at his job and he just enjoys yeah, doing it. it. It's it is crazy because how do, how do you stop someone like that? Like there's no like you get what I mean. Like there's no kryptonite for it. There's no like uh, hidden secret you could throw out there. And at the end, he wins. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I know he goes into custody. He gets a swastika dug in his yeah. head to me, you know. And I, maybe that's Tarantino doing that so we can swallow better. But at the end of the day, Hans Landa wins. He does not pay for any of the shit he did in the movie. He yeah. wins. I don't even think he like he he is one of the best movie characters. Agreed. He's in the Hall yeah. of Fame of villains for sure. First ballot yeah, Hall of like, Famer. Let alone Tarantino. Like films in general, he is one of the best villains. It's Tarantino's favorite character he's ever created. It sounds like I, I can understand yeah. why. <laughs> and then Christoph Waltz playing him as well. I mean, again, it's yeah. it wouldn't it yeah. wouldn't have a, 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 I, I guess a lot of Tarantino characters, because I think a lot of the time he's they're written with people in mind. He's good at casting. Yeah. He's good at, at, at picking his, his, his no cast. One he, else, there's no yeah, one better, no one I think. else could play. Hans Lander, and it'd be the same. There are some, so, some of my some of my favorite uh, casting what ifs are in Inglorious Bastards. So we'll save that for uh, when, when we're talking <laughs> for, for about that. But yeah, you you can't Hans Lander, and then, and then yeah, honorable mention to Jules, who obviously we'll be talking about more today anyway. But yes, very very close second, and then, I mean there could be recency bias with that as well. But Jules, <laughs> that's very in, ter- true. in terms very true. of iconic. As well, I think Jules is probably the most famous Tarantino character. I think I would agree. Therefore, the most or iconic. It, it, it closer, maybe may the bride. Bride uh, maybe yeah, close fair, second. Fair. You know, I think yeah. those two definitely are up there for sure. Yeah. Here's some fucking facts, Jack. But our first little tidbit is fucking, 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 fucking,
fuck. Fuck's given. How many times is the word fuck used in the movie Pulp Fiction? So I, I, I know the ballpark. I don't know the exact number because I watched... Let's hear what I, you get. I, I, get I, I watched guess. the... Uh, there is an incredible YouTube compilation of just the fucks. And it is, it is around <laughs> the 250 mark. Yes, you're very, very close. Yes. 265 is the count. 265. It's amazing. It's a lot yes, of a lot of fucks. He gave a lot of fucks. <laughs> Body count. How many people are taken out in this film that we know for a fact? And we're going to talk about someone who we're pretty sure had something come to him, but we don't honestly see or know the end of a certain character, which is in the middle of the film. And I'll let you guess the number. I'll say the, the character's name because we're not 100%. We know we're pretty sure he dies, but we never confirmed that he is dead. For a film that's this violent, I don't think there's actually that many deaths. Well, I think a lot of people forget that they show the same violence twice. So that's that's where it gets really violent, but it's the same scene just shown twice. Yeah. So you have five? Very close. Seven. Seven is the number. The one who hangs in the balance, well, there's two, the Gimp and Zed. Yeah. But we're going to talk about both of them. Zed, we know, is going to die. Yeah, the, the question but is in when. the movie, he does yeah. not die. Yes. Just how long is, how long, uh, is the medieval stuff going on for before he's finally off the earth but he technically does not die in the film so we'll yeah. hold him off I'm, I'm just going through my going going through my yeah. i think i i missed uh i missed the um because whenever you think of the apartment scene you always mm -hmm. think of three people because that's the majority of it but i forgot the guy behind the door so that's yes. uh, that immediately yes. takes my number up to six so the four of them go Vincent goes. Yes, that, that's who I've forgotten. I've forgotten Vincent. Maynard goes. He gets yeah. stabbed by Butch. And then Butch kills the boxer. Yeah, shit. Yes. So there's your seven. Yeah. Yes, there's your seven that he died or done. Yeah. People think it's more violent than it yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, it's violent. That's how good a movie it is. Because you, you think, you know, you, when you think of Kill Bill, you're like, oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> Kill Bill's violent oh, yeah. as fuck. Yeah, but people yeah. are like, oh, man. Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Those are violent films. Like, have you seen Inglourious <laughs> Bastards? Have you seen some, have you seen some of those? Ooh. Some bare feet sightings. A big thing that Tarantino loves, he loves him some feet. Now, up until this point, the other movies we have covered, there have not been many bare feet sightings. How many bare feet do we get in this film? Well, I know Mia Wallace is barefoot basically the entirety of the film. Um, yep. I think that we see of yeah. her feet. Yes, that we yeah, see of so her I feet. Think there's two close-ups of her. Duh. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of talking of foot rubbing. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a lot of talking of massage. Five? You're damn close to getting oh, seven. I'm, always, I'm just And just we get out. our first male barefoot. We get Bruce Willis's barefoot after the shower. Yeah. We get him in and, bed. Uh, and, yeah. So yeah, there are seven. A bit, a bit of Bruce, Bruce yes. Shaft in that, uh, that scene as well. Bruce, and we get a little, <laughs> we get a little, we get, we get a little, little Bruce. <laughs> we get Willis's Willis. Willis's Willis. Oh, boy. Good time. <laughs> Next up. The motherfucking Tarantino-verse. Now, we have some Tarantino connections in this film. There are six, and three almost, and I will explain them. Number one. As everyone should know, Vincent Vega, played by Mr. John Travolta, is the brother of Vic Vega, a.k.a. Mr. Blonde, played by Mr. Michael Madsen from yep. Reservoir Dogs. Number two. In the opening scene, Pumpkin, played by Mr. Tim Roth, has a pack of red apple cigarettes on the table in front of him. It is the first time they are seen in the Tarantino-verse. They make it into five other films, From Dustal Dawn, Four Rooms, Kill Bill, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They also make it into a movie called Romy and Michelle's <laughs> yeah. High School Reunion. High School Reunion. I almost said wedding. I don't know why wedding. 
High School Reunion. Uh, because at the time, he was dating Mia Sorvino. So Red Apple Cigarettes, make it into a movie outside of the Tarantino and just, uh, just Just a quick aside there. That is an incredible film. Yeah. I'm not going to have anything bad said about it. It's, uh, <laughs> hey, it, 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 when it pulls in something Tarantino, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm it all is, good it for is, it. I'm it's all one good of our go-to, like, just feel-good things. It's like, let's just put, let's just, let's just have something on. Number three. We get our first official sighting of the Big Ahuna Burger logo and name. Our first sighting, I mentioned back in our first episode, was on the cup. It was minus the logo in Reservoir Dogs. Mr. Blonde had it. Big Kahuna Burger would also appear in three other films with its logo, From Dust Till Dawn, Four Rooms, and Once Upon a Time on Highway that's actually on a sign, either on a bus or a billboard that mm. uh, they drive by. And it also makes Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. So it crossed I, over I, twice. I, I spotted the Big Kahuna Burger. I didn't spot the cigarettes. It's impressive how, how <laughs> easily they're snuck in. Number four. One of my favorite scenes, Mr. Captain mm-hmm. Coons is believed to be a descendant of Crazy Craig Coons. We never see Crazy Craig Coons because he's a member of the Schmitty Bacall gang, whose name is on the handbill that Django has in his pocket that he shows the members of the LaQuint Mining Company in Django Unchained. So he is actually after part of the gang, and one of them is Crazy Craig Coons, who Mr. Captain Coons would descend from and hide a watch in his ass. <laughs> Jimmy Dimmick, played by Quentin Tarantino in this film, is somehow related to Mr. White, a.k.a. Lawrence Dimmick, from Reservoir Dogs. Number six. Fabian's white Honda that Butch uses to run Marcellus over with is the same exact white Honda that Miss Jackie drives in Jackie Brown. Now, our three almost. I talked about this back in Reservoir Dogs. The Bonnie situation, which is the last of the three storylines in this film, was a scene that was cut from Reservoir Dogs and even gets a mention from Nice Guy Eddie in the deleted scenes. It was repurposed for this movie. Nice Guy Eddie mentions about uh, Bonnie, who they were going to grab her as a nurse to come help Mr. Orange. So the Bonnie situation got kind of changed. He even says the Bonnie situation in the thing. So if you get to see the deleted scenes, you will see that scene in it. Drexel originally had extra scenes in True Romance, but they were cut and added to an earlier version of Pulp Fiction, before being cut altogether. So we were almost going to get more Drexel Spivey in this film, which then would put this movie ahead of the timeline of True Romance. And that means it's also ahead of the timeline of Reservoir Dogs, which means while Vic Vega is in prison, his brother Vincent Vega is killed. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. let your mind spin around on that for a little bit. It's insane. But obviously, you know, whatever. But that's if, if you go forward, that's how it would work. And the other one is kind of, you know, it's it's an obvious nod, but the Fox Force 5, the TV show Mia Wallace was briefly on, is the genesis for what would become the Deadly Viper Assassin Squad in Kill Bill. However, obviously they're not the same. The Fox Force 5 was a, a group of, like, superhero women. The Deadly Viper Assassin Squad, they're not doing anything <laughs> super heroic. They're killing people. But much like the character that she plays in the show, Raven McCoy, Uma, as when she's the bride, is a woman who is exceptional with blade weapons. And those were the facts. Jack, and now the gospel, according to the almighty Tarantino, chapter four, Pulp Fiction. And you can't start talking about Pulp Fiction unless we start with that opening diner scene. And we're not going to do what I've done in some of the other ones. Pulp Fiction is so well known. I would like to have a conversation about things that happen in it, why these things happen, what the fuck's going on. Things that's like, as you watch the movie, you just kind of sit there and then all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, why'd that happen? One of those moments, and it's actually a genius moment, and I Really felt this way when I rewatched it again. Like, I've seen it since Thanksgiving time here in America till I did this with you. I've seen it four mm. times. And probably before that, I haven't seen it in about five years. Last time I saw it was when they brought it out for its 25th anniversary in the theaters. So uh, maybe three, four years ago. I can't remember the last time I saw it four times in a row, except when it came out. I saw it like six, seven times when it was in theaters. 
the Garcon moment is absolute genius because it is the touchstone with which when Tim Roth says it in the opening, and then we forget about this opening scene until the end of the movie when we hear it yelled while they're talking. It's not forced. It's beautifully done. There's just something about how he had spent time in France and over in Amsterdam was writing this. And there's just something about him bringing that and reality in. You've got this Englishman in America. He would have been to France. He would have heard the word garçon. Americans had never heard that fucking word in our entire <laughs> lives until Tim Roth jumps up and says, garçon, coffee. And then that I love when she comes over, garçon means boy. I just love the fact that Tim Roth is English. He comes from Europe. He's been to France, probably knows, has some French friends. He says garçon to a girl, and she here, here's an American coffee shop waitress who knows what the word means, and he doesn't. I just love the fact that when she cracks him and then he looks at her and the smile they have, it's just, I don't know, it's one of those great fucking moments that I think slipped by most people's conversation of how that little moment is genius without it. All of a sudden, if they were to stand up and go, everybody free, yeah. it's that moment yeah, yeah. where in the moment when you first see it, you don't realize that at the end, when you hear it, you go, oh, fuck. Because you, you know, everybody free, oh, yeah, fucking like robbery. You. And then all of a sudden we go, we go to credits and you're like, oh, shit. We remember that so vividly because you're like, what the fuck just happened? Are we ever going to see that again? And we get sucked into these stories. We forget about the opening. And then when they're talking and the conversation is about to end and we hear it. We know shit's about to go down because we know they jump up and we're like, oh, my God. Like, it's that moment where you just understand the genius of what he was doing with this film and his writing. This is why talking about pop fiction is quite difficult sometimes because <laughs> we know where that's going to go now. Absolutely. Like, tr- but but tr- trying to think from a perspective like the first time I watched it, my mind at towards the end wasn't, oh, it, it was like, oh, they're in that diner from the beginning didn't think it was at the same time it was just like oh so they're and then what they'll probably end up doing is like well, i don't know walking past them on the way out or they'll come in or something like that and then like you said it just completely and by that time in the film as well you've kind of been trained a little bit how to watch it if that makes sense i agree agreed yeah yeah because mm-hmm. it is it does sometimes take a bit to get used to the non-linear kind of style of things for for example <laughs> hey isn't john travolta dead <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. The very first time I saw it, I was leaving the theater and I understood what was going on. Like, look, I don't want to pretend I'm some, you know, oh, I know everything. No, nothing like that. But I was able to follow along. Like, yeah. I was in the story and I understood what was going because we were jumping back and forth. And he did a great job of when he jumps. We go, like I said, we had the two scenes of violence. He led us into yeah. them. So when we came back to them, we realized we were back in time. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, we yeah. weren't suddenly in the car with Marvin and then be like, wait, where are, what's going on? You know, he was like, okay, I'm going to show you again what we, what we just happened but from a different person's yeah. point of view that we didn't know was in the room with them so when we were walking out of the theater some old lady well uh, she's probably dead now <laughs> but she was like in her 50s 60s she goes i don't know i thought john travolta died in the middle of the movie what <laughs> happened and i was just like uh fuck i was like this movie's not for you it's not yeah and that's this fine movie <laughs> went over your head you're out of it already your first time you'll probably never watch it again that that first scene is up there with i, I think my favorite in the film Especially in hindsight, when watching it again, because like when you're, it's an incredible film to rewatch because like you, you see oh, John Travolta go to the, see the things you, you get miss. to see him go to the toilet. You do. <laughs> yes. He walks. He walks past. And them. if you listen carefully, you will actually hear Samuel Jessica go shit, Joe, sit near you, my muffin, yeah. and it trails off. 
Well, again, like you said, yeah. the first time you're watching it, you don't pay attention to it. But when they cut back to a shot over Amanda Palmer's shoulder, who plays Honey Bunny, you just see his back. You see him just walking. And you don't think anything of it because at the time, you don't even know what Vincent Vega oh, looks yeah. like. We well, haven't even been even, shown even him. You know yet. what he looks like. There's no reason for you to think he's going to be wearing a weird ass blue t shirt. Because, yeah. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it perfectly lays the cards out on the table for what the film's going to be. It is a, it is the perfect, like, just encapsulation in a couple of minutes of what Pulp Fiction is. Oh, it, yes. Without the benefit of hindsight, just the dialogue, like you said, like the, the, the humor, yeah. the brutality of it all, that is all there in the first five minutes. And then on yes. top of that, it is also, like you said, it's the end of another story. And that end of that other story <laughs> yeah. is actually kind of a continuation of another bit. It's the end of a story, but it's the beginning of the yeah. movie. You're like, wow, it just goes all over the place, you know? Yeah. It's genius. And when Amanda Plummer gets up, he goes, everybody be cool, this is a fucking robbery. And she goes, any of you fucking pricks move. I mean, I'm going to execute every motherfucking last one of you. When she says it again, she says it differently. Yes. And I read something that Tarantino wanted it to be different. It wasn't uh, an editing choice like or a mistake. The point was, you're seeing it from two different mm. versions. When we see it the first time, it's Honey Bunny and Pumpkin's conversation. So yeah. when she stands up, she says, any of you fucking pricks move, and I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. When we see it again, she says, I'll execute every mother every motherfucking one of you, whatever. Yeah. You know, how I forget how it flips. Now we're seeing it from Jules' perspective. So when people see things differently, you know, like they they remember things yeah, differently. Yeah. So he wanted to be like, okay, yeah, when we see it the first time, this is how you remember. But now we see it again, and this is how he sees it, you know. And if he was telling the story back, he may say, Well, she said it this yeah. way when in reality she said it that way. You know, like I even I've messed it up trying to remember it. And you know. You know what I mean? So it's like I was just genius. I'd never thought of it. I just thought sometimes you leave things in because of a, a performance. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. you can see a lot of mistakes in film. And like the reason it stayed in, we knew that it didn't uh, stay exactly the way it was. But because the actor or actress gave such a performance, we want to go with this. We don't care if people notice that the toast is now smaller than it was two minutes ago. A great example of that to jump back to a film we talked about before. The bathroom scene in Mandy, the camera fucked up. So I think it was supposed to track more, but it got stuck on a rail. But the performance was so good that they used that footage anyway. So you can see a little bit of like a bump and a jump when they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, I clocked the the line was different, but I just assumed it was uh, a new yeah, choice. I, yeah. I didn't. I hadn't thought about it like that, and that is a very clever way of uh, of doing it. Yeah, it's genius. There's nothing that's done that isn't thought out. You know, there's no happy accidents in, in a Tarantino oh, yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're all thought out. The opening. Is just genius, and those little moments that you, when you go back and see them, you don't realize how important they are. Garçon seems like a throwaway line, just a little funny thing for the corner. Garçon means boy. You'd be like, ah ha ha, that's funny. You don't realize that, you know, that little humorous moment is really <laughs> there for when you hear it later to go, oh fuck, oh shit, we've got us a, we got us a Mexican standoff yeah. coming here pretty soon. But then that leads us to surfer music, into Jungle Boogie into the great opening where we get to meet two men who are getting reacquainted with each other for the first time in a couple of years in Jules and Vincent. And instead of the old, well, we're going to kill these people, it's the old, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a while. Get to know your chit-chat. And, of course, it comes up with the great eye-opening experience for Americans to realize that the food that we have over here, people have over there, but we don't call it the same thing. So the Royale with cheese, I would like to ask you as a person who is from the U.K., have you been to France? 
and had a Royale with cheese. And is that correct? Because I'm pretty sure it is because I know Tarantino was in France a lot and in Amsterdam when he was writing the script. So I feel like he definitely would have known that. The quarter pounder yeah. over here in America is the Royale with cheese over there. Because it's, it's the quarter pounder here. Like I could speak for London. So really? it's the quarter pounder here. But it is more, um, I think it's more just like a brand name rather than anything else. I'm not, really? I, okay. I, know it, I know in uh, France it at least used to be. I don't know if they've tried to uniform. Don't ruin it. That's not. Uniform <laughs> menus or anything like that. <laughs> But so I had a leading question with that. So why is the rest of the world still using the stupid fucking metric system? Why can't you just get on board with us Americans? Well, if we're going to talk about that, <laughs> it is stupid. I feel like we should use the metric system until we get to weighing things. I don't think we should be weighing people by stones anymore. I don't know what, when people are like, oh, I'm four stone. I'm like, what, what is the size of these stones? Like I've seen big stones. Like, how are you comparing where at least a pound we have like a system that yeah. makes that. But like when I hear people go like, I'm 14 stones. I'm like, is that fat? Is that tall? Like I, I have no bearing of 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 weight when you guys use. So we're just as as representatives of our country. Then we'll uh, we we can we can set this to rest <laughs> now. I will I will take that to I know the Queen or whoever it is we go to those things for. Well, she's got COVID. Yeah, I true. Think Charles true. is hoping that she doesn't make it back from this. He can finally become king. But I'll uh, I'll do that if you guys drop Fahrenheit. You know what it does? I'll tell you what it does. Okay, so you gotta understand when it's warm here. Fahrenheit, we get higher yeah. numbers. So we get to say 90s. Celsius doesn't get to 90s when you oh, can well, in comparison. So it makes us feel like it's warmer. For Americans, bigger is better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Me saying tongue in cheek about stupid shit about America, we are, we are such a dumb country. But I think really what it is, is it's like 95 seems like, ah, oh, it's warm mm. outside. As opposed to like, I don't know what the calculation is in Celsius. I'm going to be honest oh, here. I don't know what 95 weird. degrees yeah. in Celsius is flipping. It's got to be like, 30 degrees, that makes people feel cold. Like, oh, I'm going to go in the water. What is that? It's 32 degrees Celsius outside. People are like, that's fucking cold. It's, so it's, when Americans are like 95 or 100. That's a great day. I know, I know. <laughs> but but you've got to think yeah. like an American and, you know, bigger is better, you know. So saying 95 degrees outside makes you feel like, oh, man, so much warmer. I mean, what would Nick Lachey have done if the, he had to be Celsius? He, you know, they were 98 degrees. <laughs> but what, what, what would the band been made? Yeah. Who knows, man? Who knows? What would the greatest if the band is named... <laughs> Outside of America, whatever it is in Celsius, that would have been fantastic. Uh, yeah, just doesn't make any sense to me. I, I work with a lot of uh, Americans, and we'll always have like the, you know that part of a Zoom call where you're waiting. <laughs> it's oh, what's uh, what's the weather like? Oh, no, no, it's, it's nice. It's like well, like you said, it's like oh, it's it's really hot today. It's like it's like 32, 33. It's like that's not. Hot. Oh wait, no, you're in London. It's like yep. Yeah, I'm not just being like weirdly sarcastic. Yeah. But then the, the, the flip side of that is they'll be like, "Oh, it's, it's like uh, it's like 80 today." So I don't know what that means. That could be that that could it's, yeah, it's good it, weather. It, it, it's it could good mean weather. you're freezing. Yeah. It could mean you're uncomfortably yes. warm and you can't go outside. So 32 degrees Fahrenheit is when water yeah. freezes. So for us, if you say 32, we're like, "God damn, that's fucking cold." It's oh, yeah. cold I'm like, yeah, I'm just in I'm just in shorts. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's we're fine. it's so warm over here. I think I've lost a stone. I, I just think I've lost a stone. <laughs> now, they finally make it to the place and the great trunk scene. They're the second one he does. So, right off the bat, you know, oh, we're going to, this is going to be a thing. Because, you know, we go in Reservoir Dogs, we get the cop yeah. out of the trunk, and we go to the trunk scene. And we should have shotguns for this type of deal. Great fucking scene. Now, knowing the scene in hindsight, should they have had shotguns for this deal? Would that have been the proper weapon? Because, Shotgun spray. I can tell you this. If they had shotguns and they would not have shot Brett from front and behind, they would have killed yeah. each other. They would have annihilated Brett. 
but they would have also hit each other. Like they both, they'd be dead. Marvin in the corner would be dead. Like that gun, those I mean, two guys shooting at him. And that was like, literally like you and I are facing each other. They would have, they would have obliterated. Brett would be gone. They'd be dead. And there's a real good chance that Marvin would have got some in the corner. Which well. is a very Tarantino scene, to be fair. <laughs> it's them, them Agreed. all accidentally killing each other is a very Tarantino. Would have been a very, it's a very short film. It's a very quick uh, it, film. It would also be harder to accidentally shoot Marvin in the face with a shotgun, you'd assume. Marvin would be alive without the shotgun, yes. But yeah, I don't. I but, don't. Only one of them would have shot. True. I don't know if the speech would have been as cool, but they could have, they would not have been able to shoot Brett. And, you know, who knows? Maybe the guy behind the door never comes out either. Like breaking concentration. <laughs> I mean, that would have been ringing in the apartment. I think cops would have come quicker. Yeah. Which they don't even give a shit. Like that's just America. They're obviously in a less than upscale area of LA. So the fact that there aren't cops immediately there isn't a surprise. A gunshot's fired in Malibu or, uh, you know, up in the Hollywood Hills, Rodeo Drive. They're there in a matter of seconds. But they were, there's a good chance there could have been a gunshot. No one's saying anything. It's the multiple gunshots at the end where the cops would have been brought in. But other than that, the first gunshot where he goes, oh, did I break your concentration? Most people are like, oh, it's just another Tuesday morning. Yeah, but with a shotgun, it doesn't quite, I, I guess sh shotguns, um, they're more imposing. So that having a shotgun probably means you're less likely to have to shoot it. Yes. Oh, yeah, that, that yeah. it does definitely makes an asshole Because that, that would be the breaking concentration. It will be cocking the shotgun rather than yes. shooting him. Yes, absolutely. But I think they had what they needed. I agree. Shotguns would not have been a good idea in such a close, close space. They would have been awful. It would have been a tragic for everybody. <laughs> it would have been a very short film. We would have spent a lot of time on Butch. We've not got a whole lot out of these guys. No one's retrieving the case, I can tell you that. <laughs> They're almost all dead right there. Well, the case is just what's left of them. <laughs> After uh, accidentally slicing everyone open with a shotgun. Now, the genius of the foot massage conversation prior to them going into the, the room, the genius of it is the banter back and forth, obviously, which leads from the fact that we're talking about Tony Rocky Horror getting thrown out a four-story window through a glass enclosed garden below. How he survived is unreal, in my opinion, anyways. And then he only had a speech impediment. <laughs> it's very quite remarkable. But that leads to the fact that, you know, that he was thrown out because they believed that he had touched Mia Wallace's feet and that there had been, you know, some little implications of it being, you know, not too fond for Mr. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Marcellus. I, I feel like um, Vincent's right. The foot massages are very sexual. Uh, there's definitely, especially, you know, uh, you know, male, female, 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 like whoever's giving them, unless you're being paid to do so, you know, like that's your job, your masseuse. They, there is a sexual connotation to them in, in a way. I think the better term would be intimacy. Like okay, yes, yeah, I get you. Yeah, more, yeah, more about like intimacy. Uh, yeah, you can't just casually give someone a foot rub. Like it's, uh, there is a level of intimacy to it that isn't, I can't think of many things on that level which aren't just out and out fucking, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, there yes. is an intimacy to it, which is always then definitely hints that, well, if they're doing that, there's probably going to be something else going on. You know, you don't just do that, like you said, to a casual acquaintance. So if one of your friends were to 
give your fiance a foot massage, are you throwing them off the four-story <laughs> balcony as well? <laughs> you know what I mean? There would be a conversation, I think, that is. <laughs> there is definitely a conversation needed. <laughs> yes. To find out why you need a foot massage. Like, did you step on something that was glass? They were trying to stop the bleeding? Yeah, like, yeah, there yeah, has to yeah, be a really you know, good yeah, reason. Or, uh, you know, <laughs> there, there could be a good... I'm, I'm not going straight to the balcony. Let, let, let's put it that way. There will be, uh, there'll be a conversation... Uh, that needs to be had. Like, I, <laughs> did Marcellus Wallace overreact? We just won't know. It's uh, what? yes, we we won't know it's, because it's, bet- from, it's between you know, them. I think was the line between him yeah. and Tony Rocky Horror, like she says. Yep, <laughs> but it's a perf- It's a it's a very clever way of because it's funny. It is a very funny witty exchange between two people. Well, especially when he brings in the homophobia, yeah. which really that you know, like Tarantino's great at this. And if you listen to our podcast up to this point we've brought this up like he's great at setting something up and you feel like one character has the upper hand and then all of a sudden it switches another character puts that person mm-hmm. on the back foot without them yeah. checking on it now in this sense it's not so much like a tete-a-tete moment but it really is hey yeah i know about i'm the foot fucking master don't tell me about foot massage he's totally reeling him and he's yeah. hooked him he's reeling him in and then he's like would you give a guy a foot massage and as soon as he says that he goes from being the king of foot massages to having a homophobic reaction to the fact of touching a man's foot which travolta's character sets him up beautifully for knowing he's going to have the reaction and he's just kind of like Ah, it's, it's, it's a, there's just a small nod of genius in that to just set him up and kind of illustrate the point that while you say foot massage isn't a big deal, you won't give a man yeah. a foot massage because in your mind, you make that feel like that makes you gay. And the only reason that will make you gay is there's got to be a sexual connotation associated yeah. with it, which is, but it, it's, there's so, so much you learn from that conversation. So like you said, you learn a lot about Jules and Vincent. You learn a lot about, <laughs> yes, you do, you know, Marcellus Wallace and what what his deal is. Um, you also learn, you know, not not so much about Mia Wallace's character, but what she like, who she is, because then obviously in the in yes, they set up the mystique yeah, of her right. But also, away, it means like... that when the the next section happens, and you know, all, all of uh, the <laughs> the famous ODing scene, because of that foot rub conversation, you're like, ah, what if he's thrown someone off a balcony for you know giving her a <laughs> for foot touching rub? her feet? What's he going to do? Like, yeah. you know, it, it sets the stakes really well. Yes, very and very it's, high. From, mm-hmm. like you said, just is laying the seeds of everything that you need to know <laughs> to appreciate the film mm-hmm. in what you feel not well, not forgettable because we're on a podcast nearly 30 years later talking about mm-hmm. it, but in, in like a very flippant conversation that doesn't feel like it means anything sets up that, but it means yeah, everything. Sets up the next hour plus of the film. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of many <laughs> writers. Or, or many directors who, who can, can do, do that. that without it feeling like they are, which is what I think Tarantino is very good with this, is everyone's watched a film where, you know, a character will, like, mention, I don't know, like, their new speedboat and then look directly down the camera. It's like, oh, okay, cool. So there's going to be a speedboat at the end of the film. Like, yeah, you know. yeah. Or someone knows a technique. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, ex- exactly. Or they're, they're like, oh, they're going to use this later. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah just remember, don't shoot this at that. It's like, oh, cool, so yeah. that's, that's yes. what's going to happen. Well, Tarantino sets yep. all that up without you realizing he's setting it up. And I think that's what makes this yes. film, it's what makes the film accessible. Because it is, it is confused. Like again, it, it's it's lost on us, I think, because of how many times we've watched it. But it is a confusing yes. film. You know, it's it's not 
it's not yeah. done in a even by non-linear standards it's a confusing film so having like the little breadcrumbs that he's leaning uh, leading through it is it's incredible great scene uh leads me to this question and i thought this the other day why the fuck would marcellus hire these fucking slackers in khakis to acquire a case that of such value in the first place like it seems like these are the worst people to have it like brett and his buddies are the seems like to be the biggest fuck-ups why would you hire and trust them with such whatever is in the case we're gonna get to in a second why would you trust them with such an important piece of luggage that has such important contents why would these be the guys why wouldn't vincent and jules be the first guys you send for this retrieval in the first place of wherever they got this which another genius thing is we don't know because when you know brett says well when we first got into this we had best of intentions like we don't know where it's come from why they had to go get it so that's a great yeah. thing too which sometimes you don't need the answer or thing but why these guys like i thought the other day i was like why would you hire these guys these guys seem like bubbling fucking morons the, the only thing i can think of is nobody would expect them to have it so like if you were hiding in plain yeah, sight yeah, like if, if you thing. were a rival gangster and you knew marcellus wallace had whatever it is in the briefcase like your first thought's probably going to be right let's see if jules and vincent have it <laughs> let's let's go to the key people in the organization and see see what they've got and then fair no one would fair. think hey he knows those students right <laughs> clearly they didn't hear about tony rocky horror <laughs> they wouldn't have held the case <laughs> I mean, that's another thing, like, you think about it. So if touching her feet will get you thrown out, like, stealing his mm. shit gets oh, you yeah. killed, too. There's another great line that comes up when we go to the Ezekiel 25:17, right before it. It's the, you know, the, the famous, one ain't no country I've ever been from, you know, the whole, you know, <laughs> say what again one more time. And then what's Marcellus Wallace look like? And yeah. it's Marcellus Wallace doesn't like to be fucked by anybody but misses Mia Wallace. Just remember that for when we move down the road, because that just little line, people still forget about it. I mentioned this the other day to a person, like that becomes very important in about two scenes from now yeah. when we get onto the gold watch, because you don't think about it until it happens. And when you think about the the outcome, you're like, oh yeah, no, he, he wasn't fucking around. He doesn't like to be fucking around. <laughs> this is Mia Wallace. <laughs> now, I'm not a very religious person. As a matter of fact, I'm not religious at all to each their own, but I will say Jules, as you were saying, makes spouting Bible verses cool as oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Ezekiel 2517, which is partially made up as well, is amazing. Do you think that Spielberg emulated this scene with the Bible spouting sniper in Saving Private Ryan? It's not the same exact level, but he is up there getting ready to kill people, and he is spouting Bible verses before he shoots his gun every time. Maybe he'd already had this thought out, but it's, it, and we're talking almost five, six years later, so, I mean... Barry Pepper's character really does feel like, again, like I said, the delivery is different. The way it's done is different, but it's, I can't think of other people who have used yeah, it as well. It's making, uh, <laughs> making Bible verses cool. <laughs> um, exactly. It's like <laughs> the only way no, it's been I, cool I think, is these yeah, two Yeah, I, I could definitely, I, it wouldn't surprise me if that is kind of what started at least started the thought process rolling with that but he was a cool character that's that's a very cool character i liked it but there, i can't see that scene and yeah. not think of jules winfield when it happened whether they're they're correlated or you know and he kind of got the idea like you know that was kind of cool but i'm gonna do it this way and then it's obviously on uh uh nick fury's tombstone 
<laughs> yes, it was a, a civil uh, war. Yeah, one. Yeah, either civil war or Winter Soldier. One of the one of the Captain Americas. Yeah, and it's uh, as yeah. soon as that, I think everyone cool. in the cinema was like, ah, it's uh, well, everyone who wasn't a kid. So before we end, well, technically, this is the second epilogue. Like we haven't <laughs> yeah. gotten into the three main stories yet. What's in the case? What do you think is in the case? Uh, so I, I have the theory I like, and then I have the theory I'm going to assume it is. So the theory I like is that it is Marcellus Wallace's soul. Okay. Um, that's that's a very popular theory. Out there. Uh, the the main things from it were the plaster on the back of his neck is where in traditional stories the soul can be drawn from or something like that. And the idea is that okay. he's sold his soul to get into the position he's in, and he wants to get it back. And I just think that's really cool. That is cool. I'm, I'm, I won't deny. I do like um, the idea. It's the Reservoir Dog Diamonds that it's uh, Ooh, to tie okay. to tie it back into Reservoir Dogs. That that's the two theories I've always kind of been drawn to anyway. Yeah, I hope it's the soul. Just add like a random supernatural element into a <laughs> relatively grounded film. That's the great thing about the Tarantino movies is the things that are left open that aren't said that gives you, you know, whether he knew that fans would just run with theories and ideas, probably had no idea that that would happen. But the fact that people are, you know, running with it. And then, you know, he just stole from, I forget which movie it was he saw, but, you know, there was a, an old noir you know, movie where the case came up and the light hit their face. And you never knew it was in in the case, but you knew it was a very yeah. valuable case and something needed just by their reaction and just the glow. So he he went with that too, and it's it's just a genius little nod. Again, it keeps the conversation going thirty years after the fucking yeah, film, and, and everyone's got their own idea of what's in that case. It's, I I don't know when it shifted, and I'll probably blame things like Star Wars and stuff for it. But you don't need to know everything. I 100% Everything agree. Tarantino gives you is what you need to know to understand the film. You don't need to dive into... Agreed. You don't need every single question answered. And I just think it is so much more interesting Because well, that's it. not life anyways. Well, yeah. You know, that's just not life. Like, you don't always get the answer. Sometimes things are the way they are just because they are. I mean, you it just sometimes we're just not in that thread of life where we get to go get all the answers. It's just the way life is sometimes. Well, you get, um, it's uh, horror movies are very bad for it, where, like, I don't need to know where Leatherface came from. I don't need to know why Michael Myers is killing people. Like, you don't need the deep, every, you know, every case doesn't need to be filled with something. Every, every. Sometimes coming up with the idea in your mind is yeah, even like, better. Yeah, like, regardless, the, the one thing we can say for sure is whatever is in the case isn't as interesting as what we're speculating it would, like, it could never live up. Agreed. To no, it'll never live up. What it is, no. even if he, has he hinted? At what's in no, it? no, he has not hinted at anything. No, he never. He just lets it go. As, never as soon as anything. he says, "Oh, it's this," it's like, "Oh, okay, great, yeah. good, yeah. good." But he's yeah. smart. He's smart about it. I don't think he has any idea. He just wanted the people to come up with themselves. Much like when we talked about in our first episode, when they pan left, when he's cutting mm -hmm. off the ear, you think you've seen the ear cut yeah. off. It's I've seen the practical doesn't look nearly as good as what my yeah. mind thought I saw. So him panning left, and then Michael Madsen's character coming in with the ear in his hand made it so much better. Yeah. So, so what do you think is in the case? From what uh, Tim Roth, when he says, he goes, is that what I think it is? I think it's one yeah. thing. I think it's some kind of jewel, something that's like rare, almost like uh, in Titanic, like what yeah, is yeah, the, yeah. Well, I forgot the name of that. It's some kind of amazing jewel or even something that's like an artifact, kind of like, you know, in Indiana Jones, it's something that you've never seen, but you've yeah. heard about, or, you, you know, you, and you're like, is that what I think it is? Like, it's like this amazing 
you know, whatever, jewel, artifact, something, but something just like, yeah, yeah, I when it. you see it, you're just like, holy shit. But I love all the theories too. Like, I love all the theories. I don't ever shit on the theories. <laughs> just, I like them because they're fun. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a what if. We don't have the answer, so no one knows who's right. That's yeah, another yeah. great thing. Like, there's no sense of people arguing about, well, you're a fucking idiot. Like, who cares? No one's ever said. Who cares? If what makes the movie good for you is that it's a soul or it's a, it's the fucking, <laughs> it's the McDonald's Monopoly <laughs> golden ticket, whatever. It could be the golden ticket to go to Wonka. I, whatever, whatever it is, if, if it gives you joy, by all means. That's what it is in the fucking case. A Tarantino case. Wonka movie. Oh, God. Uh... Wouldn't it be great if Christopher Walken, he's old now, but he'd be great if he was like Wonka. He's just his pentameter. It'd be great. Yeah. yeah. Good old Walken. He'd be like, this is the craziest one ever. Yeah, it just works. Just works. So we're finally into the first story of Vincent Vega and Mia Wallace. I truly love the opening, and it is ballsy, the Marcellus Butch intro, where we sit on Butch. For almost two minutes without ever seeing ourselves, we just hear his voice. A lot of directors don't have the balls to do that. I love that choice. When I sat in the theater, I didn't think anything of it. It didn't bother me. There's just something about the way that the music, you know, we've yeah. got Al Green playing in the background and we hear this husky voice. Uh, box don't have retirement days. You know, it's just, you're just like, oh, this dude's got to be a badass. And then when we finally do get a chance to see him and he's already offered the money and, you know, Bruce Willis barely speaks for a while. He does have, like you, like you said, you know, the bandage on his neck, and we just see the back of his bald head, and we still haven't seen him yet. Our mind, once again, is creating a character. Fucking Darth Vader at this point, like, you know what I mean? Like, we have no idea who this man is, but we know that he's got to be something, because we've got a guy we know, and we've seen him on the screen before, is John McClane, and John McClane's a bad motherfucker, but here's John McClane sitting there, and he's a little apprehensive of the man across from him. And I just think that's one of the greatest character intros that you get to have in a movie when you've got these two guys and we don't see another man for almost two minutes, but we hear him talk the entire time. No one holds on a reaction shot for two plus minutes. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's just, it just doesn't happen. Well, and, and, and again, it, it, it's similar to the, first of all, because of the foot rub conversation, we already know it's my yes. you know, we, we've We're just filling in the blanks with stuff we kind of already know. With him. Yes. And then it also tells us a lot about, again, the Bruce Willis character, who we then don't see for another yes. hour. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, <laughs> yes. But it, it's a very, I didn't realize it was two minutes long. Like you said, because is it just, it's about two minutes. Is it yeah. slightly zooming in or is it just static the whole time? No, static on his face. And then we finally do get a cut from it back of his head. We really don't get to see Marcellus almost until, even in the gold watch, like almost until Butch runs into him. <laughs> because you see him because he's in the distance yeah. and he's like, Vince, if I get in the house, but we don't see him. Like he calls him over, but he's out of focus behind us. So we know we see his form. But we really don't even see his face at the time. So we have yet to see Marcellus Wallace's face. So we still don't know. I mean, you know who the actor Ving Rhames yeah, yeah, is yeah. by now, but at the time he's still a mystery to us, you know? And... <laughs> It's such a great little opening. And then from there, we get to jump to the date. Well, the beginning of the date. And like you said, dialogue is extremely important. It leads things. It took me time, probably five years ago, I figured this out by, by just researching. Not like I was suddenly like, I brought out my pipe and just, you know, I have an idea. It's buying the drugs, buying the heroin. And not being a person who uses heroin or cocaine, don't know the differences, you know, wouldn't know yeah. the, the simple dialogue that's about to happen. Now, when Mia has the overdose, it's because she's a cokehead. Coke is contained in baggies. Mm. Heroin is contained in balloons. And when Vincent buys them at the house, 
And he says, I'm all out of balloons. Are baggies okay? Throw away fucking line, right? Wrong. It's huge. It's absolutely paramount. It sets up everything. So when he says, it's not my fault that he's ODing, absolutely it is Lance's fucking fault that she's ODing because she goes into his pocket thinking she's got cocaine and she snorts heroin. However, I have read that it's easier to overdose on heroin shooting it than snorting it. But look, let's not fucking start splitting hairs here, (laughs) all right? But it's such a pivotal scene that we just think it's a throwaway line. Like, it's almost lost in the whole thing when, you know, because he's like, oh, can I shoot up here? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm all out of balloons. You okay with baggies? None of us think anything of it. But it's so pivotal. Again, like you said, you know, like a simple foot massage scene gives us the idea of like, fuck, man, if Vincent touches her feet, he's fucking dead, man. So like they said, these two, those two moments lead to such amazingness. And it just feels like regular conversations, a bunch of bullshit that doesn't mean anything until you really understand the context of what's happening. And you're just kind of like, there's a lot of fucking foreshadowing without us even fucking seeing it. But that's the thing. A a lot of TV especially is bad for it. But a lot of directors would. So like just before she OD'd, they would have like that line repeated again or, you know, something to remind you what had been said. But (laughs) they don't because he doesn't. You know, and again, it is a film which I think is designed to be watched over and over again. And knowing that probably kind of opens you up to just throw stuff in. But also, Tarantino is clearly so confident with the screenplay and and the direction that it opens you up to be able to, again, like arguably one of the most pivotal lines in the film is something 95% of people watching the film won't even remember later on. Yeah. Well, it also shows his research, because I don't know that he's done cocaine or heroin, but he's researched, and he knows that if someone is in the audience watching, will know that, you you know, if you're a heroin, you know that, ooh, this is not a good idea. He should be using, but, you know, yeah. really, they'll know. The rest of us who don't, we're like, oh, we're sitting there and like, oh, well, oh, that's too bad. How'd she overdose? How didn't she know? You know what I mean? Like, we wouldn't understand why she didn't know, yeah. uh, but it's it's in front of us. He's told us, and if we have the knowledge, it's there, and if you don't, then it'll it'll slide past us, but it, that's the, his genius of that is just sliding that little foreshadowing line in there that we feel is just a throwaway because we're still we're still hung up on which one's your wife the one with all the shit in her face or the, which one's you you like he lies slides these little things and we're so focused on those that the main things he just he's able to slide it right past us without yeah. us even fucking seeing it yeah it, it's because because the the important thing in the in this section is she ods that's all you really need to know like yes. to, to understand what's happening you just need to yes. know that she she did too many of the drugs that's it. But the reason that this happens is because yeah. she was confused. If it was cocaine, we don't have the rest of this scene. Who knows what that leads to? Oh, uh, yeah. Who knows? Now, before we get into <laughs> a some balcony in a quick fall, people out there, and Tarantino has said that it's Butch who keys Vincent's car. Mm. Now, they say that he keys his car when they're at the strip club when they're meeting, when they run into each other. I have a problem with that, and I'll explain. They came there in a taxi cab because they lost Jules's car is who they went in. Now, unless they met there to start and his car was there, which we never see anything of. So I guess I can expand my imagination to saying, okay, it was there. But if his car is not there, Butch leaves. He does not key Vincent's car because, one, how would he know whose car it is? That's number one, unless he just wants to be a dick. For that, like Tarantino saying that, you know, I guess I would have to listen to him say it, but I've seen it written down that he says Butch is the one who keys Vincent's car. I call bullshit for the simple fact that given the timeline we're in, Butch leaves. They were dropped off after all the events of the Marvin and situation, all that shit. They had uh, uh, whoever's car was there. I believe it was um, they were driving in Jules's car. His car gets destroyed because yeah. it has to be. They arrive in a taxi. 
So unless his car is there or whatever, I mean, maybe it is, but I still have a tough time believing that Butch even would know what's his car. You know, how would he just make an assumption in Marcellus's parking lot to key this car? So what is your take on the fact that uh, Butch is the man who keys his car? That's the thing. Like, I would never put myself in a situation where I might accidentally key Marcellus Wallace's car. Yeah, it doesn't, like, even if, so say... They're, they're carpooling. So say they met at the, the club or bar or whatever it is. So John Travolta drives there in his car. He then gets picked up by Jules in his, and they go off and have their little adventure. There is no reason for Butch, who's just met, might be probably aware of who Vincent Vega is, but that doesn't mean... He's Obviously gonna... doesn't like him. Yeah. Because of their little quick tete-a-tete. Yeah, but there's a bit, there is a big stretch from that 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 to me it just it just reeks of something tarantino would say just in like a, i know uh-huh. and it's disappointing because he won't give us what's in the case but he'll say something stupid like that and i, and I always go yeah no I, I don't think that could happen like that's a big stretch for i mean butch is already going to pull a double cross on him but i mean may, he may not like what's name but i don't see him going outside and keying a car like you know what I, mean? I just don't see that as his yeah especially of super dangerous people like you know the yes especially because the... he's trying to make it to the double cross yeah you know? like one of one of the one of the scary LA gangsters prime hitmen. You're not gonna, you're not going to key his, especially when you, no. again you've got all of this shit planned. You're not going to do yes. anything to risk yes. that not yes, coming to raise through. suspicion. Exactly. I was, I wasn't sure if you're on the same page. Look, if other people like that, again, take it with you. Feel free. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I just oh yeah. So one time Tarantino said something. I was kind of like I just disagree with. You. Like I don't. I know it's your story, but it, even in your story, everything else fits. This doesn't make sense why this would suddenly happen. Yeah. Outside of you wanting to give us a little fan service, which that's not the answer we care about. You know what I mean? I don't care about who keyed his car. I don't know what's in the fuck case. You know, all the <laughs> other shit. That's the thing I care about, not this keying car thing. But before he gets in his car and he's already bought the heroin, I forget who it was. Actually, it may be my uh, guest who's going to do the Bible studies with me. It may be Craig Cohen or someone on his podcast. He has a podcast uh, called Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims. With all they do is talk about Pulp Fiction. Oh, cool. But this heroin shooting scene is a sex scene. It really is. It is Mr. Vincent Vega making love to heroin, even the way it's shot. The lighting, the slowness of filling up the, the vial with the heroin and putting it in his arm. Like, everything about it, and even his reaction afterwards, how he's driving. And, you know, they've got that great uh, black and white rear projection. But he's lit, and he's just, like, really high, but just, like, really in a good mood. Someone brought it up, like, that's really, like, a, a one of Tarantino's best sex scenes. And he doesn't do many sex scenes. <laughs> you know, and Jackie Brown, it's all, what, three seconds? You know what <laughs> I mean? It's, like, five minutes later, four minutes later, whatever it was. <laughs> so, you know, for sex scene, like, you know, I never really thought of it that way. But now kind of re-seeing it again, it really is. He's definitely showing that there's a real love affair for Vincent and heroin. Like, he is, really loves heroin. And really almost kind of like a way a person really loves, like, a good whiskey or something. Someone who, like, like they don't they don't overindulge in it, but yeah. they, they enjoy its warm company, like, once a night or something. Like that. You know what I mean? They're not just like, ah, slamming whiskeys and, you know, yeah, getting yeah. pissed drunk. He loves heroin, but, like, one at a time. Does that make sense? Like, he's just not, it's not um, he's a, he's uh, a train he's spotting. A, he's a, he's yeah. a heroin connoisseur. <laughs> yes, he's a hippie heroin connoisseur yeah. before that was a thing. Again, I feel like we're going to keep coming back to this conversation every five minutes, but that's all done without any dialogue or exposition about the fact that Vincent Agreed. Vega loves heroin. It's, again, everything you need to know about the character is drip-fed through other means, even down to how they filmed him shooting up. 
Like it, it's so layered. And similar to the, the rest of our dogs with the ear, like there's a lot of like, well, they must have had a throwaway line about him being a junkie, but there's not. It, it's just huge part of understanding the character and something they don't really talk about. It is crazy. It leads to something that there's no way they could have known 30 years down the road, but confused Vincent Vega slash John Travolta meme. <laughs> just yeah. walking in, turning around, looking for where the fucking <laughs> intercom is. That was... Uh... Whoever did that is just genius. Like, just... Who would have ever imagined him walking in like that would turn into such a fucking pop culture phenomenon many years later before I it do, was? I love, I love seeing, like, I think the only way to phrase it really is, like, memes in the wild. <laughs> like, yes. the original source of things. Because it is impossible to watch that now without thinking of... Yes, uh, I agree. I agree. I, I, my hat's off to whoever was the person who did that. It's pure genius, like... And that takes a lot of time. It's a lot of rotoscoping. Oh, like, yeah, I don't, yeah. It's a lot of rotoscoping to get him out of that scene and spin him around. Like, he's not on a green screen where it's easy just to key him out. That's a lot of fucking rotoscoping that someone decided to do. And you know what? My hat's off to you, sir. <laughs> the next round of heroin is on us, sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll make sure it's in a balloon, not a baggie. You know, it's like, and even in, you know, Once Upon a Time's got a couple, you know, the, the, the Leo memes that they've got from the two movies. But just to confuse you Volta is just it's just gorgeous. I just love that. That's what we get out of this this fucking scene. <laughs> Speaking of what we've talked about, again, the feet, the genius again of Tarantino introducing a character. We get introduced Mia Wallace two ways. We see her lips talking. So right off the bat, her red lipstick, we get the tantalizing that she's a sex pot. That we are we already know that this hint of like, oh, someone touched her feet and got thrown off a balcony. Have you met Mia? And they start laughing. I gotta take a piss. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> he has no idea what she is. So we get the little lips, and then we get to see her. And the genius of it is the first thing that Vincent Vega that they well, obviously he sees her full form, but the first thing us as the viewer sees of what she is when she goes to meet him are her feet. That is pure fucking genius. It's not just foot fetish. He has set up for us that a man touched her feet and was thrown over a balcony because of that. And what's the first thing we get to see of her when she finally goes to meet him? We see only her feet. We don't even see her face till she's in the car. We don't know what she looks like. We see her lips talk in the little microphone. We see her lean over and do some cocaine, but we get her feet when she meets John Travolta. And that is just chef's kiss. That is just it's intelligent. It's smart. Like you said, it's not spoon-fed. And and most people, again, if, if you're just watching the movie, it just kind of slides by you because you're not really paying attention to it. But when if you get a chance, you watch it many times, you sit back and you go, holy fuck. All I've heard about this woman is about her fucking feet being touched. Most people talk about women in a more sexual context. Their breast size, their ass, you know, their curves, yeah, certain yeah, yeah. things about them. And you're introduced usually that way, you know, like they, you know, precede her when she walks in the room kind of thing. And But what we get is we don't get that kind of sexual connotation. We see her lips, so we know she's tantalizing, but we see her feet. And right off the bat, we should know that, oh, it's, you know, it's dangerous. Like it's, it's basically saying to us, she is dangerous. <laughs> Here's her feet. She's dangerous. This is going to be a test of his willpower. And thankfully, he comes in on heroin. He doesn't know what's going on just yet. But those feet are, should have been right off the bat. You should have been like, oh, I'm in trouble. You know, it's just brilliant. You, you might be the only person ever to use the phrase, thankfully, he comes in on heroin. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. But she's a femme fatale. She is oh, yeah, a femme yeah, yeah. fatale set up in the old style of noir. And he doesn't see her for what the trap she is because he's so, he just got done making love to heroin. So he's just all, you know, he's feeling good. He doesn't even think about it. But it, it'll, it'll catch up to him. 
Um, Jack Rabbit Slims. Why the fuck isn't this a real place? Tarantino had discussed this early, like mid nineties, late nineties, that he was going to make this a theme restaurant. I'm very disappointed that has not happened. I don't know if you get stupid theme restaurants like Planet of Hollywood and Hard Rock we, we, and stupid we, we shit. Have, over we we there, have our share. Yeah. Tell me you wouldn't want a Jack Rabbit fucking Slims. So we we did an episode um, last year back when we were really missing going out in the wide world of uh, our top three fictional uh, fictional nights out. So like um, <laughs> yes, yes. Pub, pubs and bars we would like our in-universe in uh, dream night So out. I'm assuming the Winchester is in there. So the Winchester was in there. Um, I can't remember the others, but Jackrabbit Slims as well. We talked about that because oh. it's just like the food, the food's great. Like, you know, yeah, I, I want oh. to know what a $5 shake actually tastes yes. like. Funny now with inflation, a five dollar shake. Is, <laughs> oh yeah, it's that, nothing. That's cheap now. Oh, yeah. That's easy. You get that at McDonald's. That's five dollar shake. Those are cheap. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, easy. But no, it, it's so. I think I when I was reading up, I, I think the biggest single expense of the film that wasn't Bruce Willis's salary was the yes. set for Jack Rabbit. Hundred and five thousand dollars <laughs> yeah. to build the set. Holy crap! But. So worth it. Tarantino doesn't build many sets. If you don't know, he is a practical man. He likes actual locations. Mm. He doesn't. If he doesn't have to build a set, he doesn't want to. Obviously, certain movies have required him to. Obviously, the interior in like um, the Hateful Eight had to be built. However, for Jack Rabbit Slims, he says it best. It's a wax museum with a pulse. He's so right. <laughs> like you're just, you know. And obviously, it would have to be changed for today because obviously that's the '90s. Leaning on you know fifties and sixties nowadays, you'd be leaning on the nineties. You know the nineties oh. and eighties, like it'd be just a different look. Oh, you but didn't you man. didn't have, you didn't have to phrase it like that. We, I, we no, are, trust me. Oh, I know. We I know. Are, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have a moment. I was. I was. <laughs> I had just graduated from high school when this movie came out. I was eighteen, going on nineteen when this movie came out. I remember vividly, and now that it's coming up in thirty years soon, I'm like, how the. Fuck him. I almost if I lived twice, almost twice the same time as that movie. Like, how the hell is this happening? Like, how is you know, like how is Pulp Fiction not a movie everyone knows? And I have to tell people about it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> why do we have like, to a age? couple of years ago? I felt like if someone said, like, I hadn't seen Pulp Fiction, like, what are you a fucking asshole? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you some kind of snob that you don't want to watch because it's popular. You know what I mean? Now it's like people might not see it because it doesn't not in their wheelhouse anymore. And it's just like I'm like, oh my God. But that being said, I wouldn't trade. Where I came from to be oh, younger because yeah, yeah, I yeah, yeah. I love the fact I lived when I, you know in the time frame I've lived I wouldn't trade that so but it's just like son of a bitch how did that get so fucking far <laughs> behind me in the rearview mirror where the hell did the time go <laughs> here I here I'm a middle aged man doing a fucking podcast on a movie I fucking ejaculated about when I was a fucking teenager you know it's like what the hell god damn it things are going crazy uh, speaking of ejaculating. The OD scene. We'll lead from the OD scene up to the adrenaline scene. We're going to tie it into a nice little spot. Everyone knows how the scene goes. And we're going to actually discuss it. I'll actually have in-depth on this and the GIMP scene in two Bible studies coming up this month. <laughs> so when they get home, there was a moment when they first walked through the door. And maybe her ODing saved his life. Well, almost didn't it. But she, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was sexual tension. It wasn't there immediately when they first met. I really think she started to grow towards him. And some people would say, well, well, she's just a whore. No, I would say, look at the very brief moments we get in the film of her with Marcellus. There is no talking between them. It is a very business-like relationship. They could have been together for a very long time. So again, this could just be, you know, something new and fresh and exciting. But she's got someone who 
she seems to have a little more in common with, and I don't mean this because of race. So don't, I don't want to think, oh, why? Because Travolta's white. No, not at all. It could have been fucking Samuel Jackson. Probably would have been just as good a conversation sitting across from him. All right. So I don't want anyone to start saying the reason I think Mia Wallace and Vincent Vega got along a little bit better is because they're both white. That's not at all what I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is it seems like Vincent's a different person than has come into her life in recent time. Yeah, yeah Obviously, yeah. Marcellus was like that when they first met, probably. We don't have any backstory on that. But what the moments we do get of the two of them together in a relationship, they show zero affection towards one another. Zero. And I think there was a refreshing moment that, you know, you've got this Vincent and, he, you know, he's just different and rolls his own cigarettes. There's just something that it, he's different than Marcellus, I guess, is the best way to put it. Again, Please don't anyone say it's because of race. That's what I'm saying. It's just the two gentlemen are different. I think her fun side is able to lean more towards, I think Marcellus, he's a very business-like guy. He's not doing twist contests. That's not fucking happening. Marcellus pays someone else. He pays Vincent to do the twist contest. But when they get back from this whole thing and they've danced and they've won, there's a real moment there when they have that uncomfortable silence. There's a real moment there before he tells you he has to go take a piss of... Us as the audience going, uh-oh. First time I saw it, I go, uh-oh, uh-oh. It, 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 <laughs> I don't it's think not, Vegas making it to the credits. <laughs> it, it's, not just, it's not just a sexual tension. Like you said, it's, it is, it's like a horror movie tension. Because, again, because we know what could yes. happen. She's if, the bomb under the table. Yeah, <laughs> it, exactly. I mean? it's, like you, it, it's like, oh, no, it's... And then, obviously, this is the first, the first point in the film where uh, we have the recurring motif of bad shit happens when John Travolta goes to the toilet. <laughs> goes to the bathroom, yes. <laughs> Which is, I think there's three three times, he goes to the toilet three times in the film, and something horrible happens every single time. Yes, and yes. It's lot, lot, a lot of time for that. I posted that on my social. Someone, some dude gave me shit about it, this and that, like, well, he goes to the bathroom, not everyone dies. Like, I didn't say everyone dies. It's bad shit happens. She yeah. ODs, right? So, bad shit happens every time. Whether it's his fault or not, bad shit fucking happens. Yeah, he should just, he should just hold it in basically that's what we're uh that's that's the takeaway of pop fiction again the entire see and it's like you said it's everything that we have learned so far we've been given everything we need to know and i think yes. everyone yeah. everyone thought this was going to be heading to uh like basically john Travolta being hunted down by Marcellus <laughs> Wallace, <laughs> and then yes. it's just it pulls the rug from right from under you absolutely it does uh, yeah. But what the fuck took him so long in the bathroom? You know what I mean? If you think about it, she plays an entire song, does heroin that she thinks is cocaine, and passes out on the floor before he finally comes out. Did he actually jerk off in the bathroom? Like he was in there a very long time to take a piss. I know. He has I know, a whole conversation with himself in the mirror. And he's like, well, all you can do is jerk off and go home. And the music's still playing. By the time he actually comes out, all right, me, I got to go. The song's over with. She's thrown up and pat. Like, he was in there a significant amount of time. What the fuck is John Travolta One, this doing was, in the bathroom so long? This this was pre-mobile phone as well. Like, we've all... We agree. He wasn't, like, checking his sources or anything. We've, we've all accidentally spent 20 minutes sat on the toilet on our phone. Oh, hundred percent. But yeah, I, I'm not. I, I, unless it was a, there was a lot more of him talking in the mirror. Then uh, I don't know what he's doing. But maybe he was reading. I know he, he bought a book out of oh. uh, Butch's bathroom. So maybe he's <laughs> Jesus just, Christ. He, he has his toilet material with him. <laughs> it's just insane that he's that he was in there that long. 
Um, and we'll kind of skip past the 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 OD scene because everyone knows the scene. It's the, one of the yeah, most famous yeah, yeah, yeah. scenes ever, and I'll, we'll, I'll cover it more in depth. Filmed backwards. Yeah, the actual stab yeah. is actually filmed backwards. It's genius because if you watch it in real time, the actors being able to do it's it's amazing that they were able to do the uh, yeah. facial expressions that they did. Just just pure genius. But again, not as good as Forrest Gump. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, how does no one in his neighborhood? Call the cops when Vincent runs his fucking car to the side of his fucking house. I've always thought about that. Like, he comes screeching in at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, slams his Malibu into the side of someone's house, and nothing. Like, the cops don't even show up. They don't even come. No No one calls. Like, nowadays, with the Karen world we have, someone's calling. Someone's got to speak to someone's manager because someone's car hit someone's house. But, But not even just then. It is the no one's called the police from him running out of a fancy house holding what would look like a dead woman um driving <laughs> well, across in, in fairness in the hollywood hills it's a very hush hush community you know what i ah, mean true, like true. a lot they're probably very very everyone knows to keep to themselves cuz someone's yeah. going to be carrying a dead body out eventually well that's the, that that's the only the only thing i could think of is they knew that was that drug dealer's house so it's like yeah i'm yes, not, I'm, I'm, guess, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to get involved yeah, yeah to, you, uh, you might be right. <laughs> I'm going to close the curtains. I'm going to go back I just to always bed. thought that was crazy. He crashes a car in a neighborhood. No one fucking bats a fucking eye. You know, it's just insane. Especially at two in the morning. Yeah, it's John Travolta again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that'll lead us to the gold fucking watch. And uh, the last scene shot in the film. But one of the greatest cameos in all of movie, Mr. Captain Coons telling poor young Butch the story of his father and the gold watch, which is so important. Again, this time, Tarantino hits us over the head with it. He explains at the beginning of the scene, here's what's going to happen whether you're paying attention or not. Young Butch is going to have to earn this watch on his own. He's going to be given it, but what I've just told you is that all owners of this watch have had to go through a trial by fire in order for that watch to have significance. If you're not paying attention, Butch is going to go through some shit. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what's coming, but it's going to be some shit. Speaking of which, another great throwaway line that I don't know how many people catch, and I don't know if you catch it. Captain Coons is explaining that his father hid this hunk of junk up his ass five years. He died of dysentery and gives me the watch. He died from hiding the watch in his ass for five years. The irony of that, I think, slips by people because we're all, you know, enamored with Christopher walking the way he talks and talking about a watch being up someone's ass. But the fact that he tells his son that your dad died hiding this watch in his ass to give to you, like, that's almost as, as important. You know what I mean? So I, I caught that this rewatch. Um, so last week when I watched this <laughs> and I just, I couldn't stop laughing afterwards, but it's not just that it's, um, so to, to give away an answer to a question that will be coming later, five long years, he wore this watch <laughs> up his ass. So not, not, not hid or stuck nope. up there. He <laughs> nope. wore the watch in his ass. <laughs> it's like, yep. yep, that is, that is a yep. hell of a way to phrase that. Uh-huh. But, <laughs> yeah, died of, died of dysentery. Died of dysentery. And then Christopher Walken just <laughs> shoved it straight back up there. Oh, God. It's just genius. It's the last, it's how they wrap the film, and it's just absolutely genius. I absolutely love it. But the fact that it's it, how his father died is right in front of us the whole time, and we everyone just kind of misses it. Like, he died from wearing the watch in his ass for five years. I just fucking <sighs> love that. I don't know why it gives me such joy. 
<laughs> Question for you. I will give Craig another shout out as this was on his podcast. Cause again, I said he has a bunch of people that come on and they talked about Pulp Fiction and only Pulp Fiction is Fabian, the most annoying person in the film and, or the Tarantino verse. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. I, th- I think so. I don't know what it is about her. I know she is uh, like, like I said, Reservoir Dogs, I wouldn't change anything. Pulp Fiction. <laughs> she could like, even, like, I don't even think is it, it because is... she's dating or is engaged or married to Bruce Willis's character. Is it because it's Bruce Willis? Is it a mental thing where we think Bruce Willis should be with somebody else, whether it's older, you know, you know, do you know what I mean? Or younger, because at the time Possibly. he's still with Demi Moore. Like, so I, is, I it, is it that? I, I don't even think it, 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 it's nothing on, uh, I, I don't have the, the actor's name who played her, but like, I don't, it's not her. It's not her fault. It is just, no, no, I agree, it is, agree. It's how, it's her character. Yeah. It is a very rare misfire. I think <laughs> for like, it was clearly Quentin Tantino trying to do like the quirky, not quite like obviously this is this is pre you know the manic pixie girl shit, mm-hmm. but it is clearly him trying to do something different and it just he didn't stick the landing with it. <laughs> and gosh, it was their whole interaction was so cringy the whole time. I know, and not in like they clearly they thought it was gonna be like the cute and adorable like oh, but it's like oh no, this is this. Is I think just a lot awkward. of it does have to do with our bias towards Bruce Willis at the time. I just think it's a relationship bias for us. I think if it's her and Vincent Vega, it works. You yeah, know, I yeah. I think it works better. I just think it's the two, their contrast is hard. Did you know she's supposedly pregnant and Butch doesn't know? Oh, really? So when she says she's looking in the mirror and she thought about having a pot belly. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. then she's talking about, and then when she comes out and grabs his foot, a Butch, and she's going to tell him something. She goes, never mind. And then she has to eat a lot of breakfast because she's really hungry. Like, there are ah, so many yeah. hidden hints yeah. that she is pregnant, and Bruce Willis doesn't know. Doesn't know you. Like, she was going to tell him, but he doesn't know. I, 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 could, I could buy into that. I, I, think, I think maybe I've just, yeah. So I, I, I think maybe she, her character comes across as jarring and would fit better in another section. Because, again, there, is, there are tonal changes from, like, section to section. And I don't think that kind of energy is necessarily fitting with the Bruce Willis section. How much of it could be because of Maria Villalobos that we see first? The very femme fatale, barefoot cab driver who's very <laughs> mysterious and also seems to be very interested in, in him killing people and boxing. Stuff like that. She, has a, she has an energy that feels like it's more in his realm. And I think she may be the reason that we go from this very mysterious Colombian smoking kind of hot. She's also like a femme fatale to this very non-femme fatale French woman who's talking about having a pot belly. Yeah. And the Villa Lobos character is from like a short film or something yes. that uh, Tarantino liked. So just put the character in. Uh, pop fiction what he I, does i i think so i i think yeah i i'm not sure i'm not sure what it is it just didn't sit right you're not the only person and honestly i never thought about it until i listened to craig's uh podcast and some people brought it up and i was like jesus i think you guys might be right i think she might be the most annoying and i tried to think i don't think who else is an, as 
as annoying or more annoying than her. And I can't. And, I, and like you said, it's not her fault as the actress. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. it's, I just think there's some prejudices we bring in because of who Bruce Willis was at the time, who he is now, who he was with. And then even the woman that he first shares the screen with before we get to her, she was definitely doing a little flirty vibes. There was definitely, she was definitely, yeah. she was one of those uh, she, she women likes, who had a thing for people yeah. who killed people. Yeah. Yes. She, she, she likes she had a thing too for killers. that he just come back from killing someone. <laughs> very, very much. <laughs> oh, now, if the watch is so fucking important, why didn't he bring it himself? He has a bag when he goes out the window at the match. Why doesn't he bring the watch himself? Like, as much as we want to put this on Fabian, it's not her fault. Yes, oh, she no, forgets it, 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 but it's so important. He drops the fucking ball. Like, it's just like Marcellus hiring these fucking idiots. It's like some of the people in this movie are, like, so dumb that they're own fucking obstacles. Yeah, no, it is, it is 100% his fault. Like, if, if again, if it is, if it's as important to him... As he's as it's supposed been to be saying, and as you know, again, it killed, it killed his it killed father his dad. for God's sakes. Um, <laughs> if it's that important to you, you handle that shit yourself. Thank you. I, God, for years it's bothered me. I'm like, we all can have a good laugh, and when he's in the car and he's lost his mind, and we've all done it. We've all been in the car. We're just like we're bitching still about the person we're with and how they drive us fucking nuts. We won't do it in front of them. I love it. Bedside table on the kangaroo. Don't forget to fuck up. He's losing his shit. But at the same time, you're the reason that you forgot the watch. You are. If it's so important, your dad had it up his ass for five years and died. You can't even be bothered to bring it to a boxing match and keep it in your bag that you're going to jump well, out that, the window. That, that's the thing. Yeah. And, and he knew it's not like he on a whim decided, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go for it. And <laughs> exactly. then I'm going I'm to kill this guy. Yeah, exactly. So it was all planned out. So surely like the single most important item you possess is going to be the first thing you put in like your jumping out the window bag. Like, you know, it's up high up on the list. Yeah. It goes like, like, you know, wallet, keys, my dad's watch that killed him. I think it's watch, wallet, keys, <laughs> yeah. you know? I mean, if your father died because he hid the watch for you, that watch doesn't come off your wrist if I'm, you know, obviously <laughs> you have to take it for boxing, but I think that's the only time it comes off, uh. you know? I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, if you end up having children, you have a son, and you give him something that you died giving him, you're probably hoping, this little son of a bitch, you better be wearing this all the time. I just died for this. Well, I, I mean, like, I wouldn't. Wear that watch. Was he? Well, right. Like he's a brave man putting that on a fucking wrist strap. Well, Coons is holding it in his hand like it's a fucking um, cookie, yeah, or true, as you call them, biscuits. True. He's holding that thing like it's an Oreo. He's like, <laughs> look at this thing. <laughs> oh my goodness! So Butch finally goes to get the fucking watch. Now I had been thinking about this, and when I first saw the film, and then over the years I've come to the conclusion why it doesn't bother me anymore. But when I first saw the film. I always wondered, why the fuck doesn't Vincent know that someone else is in the apartment with him? It's not like he's quiet about it. And then it was, again, you get enamored by the film, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, I know why. Because Marcellus left the building. That machine gun is actually Vincent's. People think it's Marcellus. It's not. It's Vincent. He left it out there because he's going to take a shit. Because uh, our big man, he's got his gun on him. So they're there to kill him. Vincent's taking his shit. He's like, Marcellus goes to get donuts, and he's like, I'm going to go get donuts. And, Mar and Vincent's like, well, shit, I got some time. I'm going to take a shit. Because he's not thinking the guy's coming in. Yeah. So when he hears the door open and someone come back and rustling around, he's thinking it's Marcellus. And they're not like boyfriend and girlfriend. So they're not going to talk to each other through a door. You know what I mean? They're not going to say anything. So when he opens the door and there's Butch standing there, that's why he's surprised. Because he's expecting Marcellus to be in the kitchen with donuts. And instead, it's Butch with his fucking Mac 10. And he's just like, 
oh, fuck, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then Butch is like, I keyed your car and then shoots him. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the the perfectly timed pause of just John Travolta just taking in the, ah, oh, shit. The gravity of, yep, yeah, mm-hmm, I'm fucked. Mm-hmm. And was... maybe thinking like, Maybe walking the earth like Kane wasn't such a bad idea yeah. after all. And again, and again, the recurring theme of John Travolta should just hold it in. Yes, yes. If, if, he'd, if he'd held it in, yep. then we wouldn't have this. But I think I, I remember reading somewhere, it's like constipation or toilet use like that is a heroin thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the reason that's, that's he... Smart. Yeah. Yes. So maybe the reason he's taking his time... That makes sense. Is, that's, uh, again, a heroin thing. someone's researched it. Someone's done some research. Travolta apparently did a lot of... Uh, yes, because he wasn't sure how he was going to portray. This is, you know, obviously him being Scientologist and all sort of stuff. He wasn't sure he was going to portray it. Uh, I, I don't know who he was talking to, but somebody who was a user told Travolta that the biggest comparison he could think of is getting really drunk on tequila in a hot tub i did read this i know what you're talking about yes and he apparently uh, and then that would be like a fraction of what heroin is so he then told his wife is like right for research of this film i need to do a load of tequila shots in a hot tub and she was like right well i'm gonna come with you so apparently yeah. they were <laughs> just in a hot tub they'd lined up a load of tequila shots around the room <laughs> and just to get an idea of what heroin's is and it's like mm, that's okay. crazy interest interesting danger but not as good as running across america in Scum. That's what saying. Yeah. Anyways, you don't win. You don't win the Oscar for drinking yeah. tequila in the hot tub. Ta- ta- you got to ta- run ta- across Elvis country. to dance. You know, completely yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so we get to the beautiful Zed and Maynard. We get to go to the amazing Bring Out the Gimp. Now, in the Bring Out the Gimp scene, before it all happens, when they're trapped down below. Zed, at one point, has decided he wants to, which we don't know what's going to happen the first time you see it, he wants to rape Marcellus first. And I'm going to explain why. He does eeny, meeny, miny, mo wrong. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Every other, when he stops, he goes, my mother. So he, he stops on Marcellus, and he continues by counting at Marcellus to go back across the events. So finish on Marcellus. The first person who should have been dragged in and raped should have been Butch. But he decided sometime in the middle of it that he wanted to rape Marcellus first. A very easy thing to slip over, to not pay attention to, but it's intentional in my opinion. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong, but eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you keep going one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. You don't stop and then start again. That's cheating. Well, and again, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's like, like again, like, like we said earlier, it's anyone else, and I'd say it was a mistake. But Right, exactly. That's not, there's yeah. no mistake. It's intentional. But Tarantino knows what he's doing, and... Uh, I, I, I did see, I, I thought something was off. And when there I could be it. some underlying racism too, because when they mm-hmm. come in, there is the Confederate flag and the American flag split there at the door. Like there's a few, yeah. there's some ramifications that he could be spouting, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like very hintfully. There's, there's a lot of signs sense. that they're pieces of shit. Uh, there is, there is. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, people don't have to like it, but that's it's there. There's a lot of context that can be drawn from the flag without it being said, from who they are, Maynard, just the name he decided to choose, and then them doing the eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and then him picking the black guy first <laughs> to go and, and, you know, defile. You're like, <laughs> look, I'm just saying, there's evidence. I don't know if it'll win the court, but I'm just saying there's a lot of evidence I could provide the court to maybe get a guilty verdict on this thing. So I'm saying, yeah. What did you think the gimp was when you first watched the movie and he says, 
bring out the gimp? <laughs> what was your first thought? Like, because I'd never seen anything like this in a movie my entire life. I had no idea what they were going to get. I had no fucking clue. And it's such a great shot because that door opens up and we're kind of, it's static and we're sitting in Zed's position and we can see it through them. And we just see him opening this crate and you're just kind of like, like, I thought it was a weapon or I don't know what I thought the fuck was, was in that fucking box. Sure shit wasn't a man that I was thinking was coming out. Yeah. Um, like I said, I watched this when I was far too young to watch Pulp Fiction. Because basically, whenever I was <laughs> sick from school and my dad was the one who took time off work, he would always go and we would, there was like a local video store and we would just rent a film and watch it. And we got to the age where it felt like maybe I could watch Pulp Fiction. And even then, I think I, <laughs> I, think I knew what a gimp was or it was just kind of pre-warned. But also I'm a big fan of like the Mad Max films and stuff. And that's like 80% gimp. So it was, I, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. I was wasn't quite expecting him to be living in a box. <laughs> and he'd replace somebody. Because hmm. they even talk about this is, uh, I forget the guy's name. This, this is someone, let's take him back to what's his name's room. So someone else had been there before and he was the replacement for him. And so he's a replacement gimp. Similar question. What did you think was happening behind the door the first time you saw the film? Because I'll be, I'll be honest, honest, I did not think they were raping him. I mean, because you could hear the, oh, I thought they were, you know, beating the living, the shit out of him, you know, being brutal to him. You know what I mean? I, yeah. So was, I, I mean, my mind wasn't at a place thinking that, oh, they're definitely raping him. Like, that's what's happening right now. I, I again, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one to answer because I can't remember not knowing what was happening, if that makes sense. Because obviously, they were obviously that's where that scene was going to go. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess if you're, if you, yeah, I, 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 I think because the gimp was there, I thought it was, uh, it was going to be the rape scene. Um, I didn't necessarily think we would see any of it. Or the door. <laughs> like, I, I didn't, yes. I didn't, because I thought, um, I didn't think Bruce Willis was going to come back. Mm, so oh, I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't think, I think I, I, I knew what was happening behind the door, but I didn't think that door would ever open again. Well, you should have remembered the gold watch story. Yeah. Daddy hit the, yeah. <laughs> something got hit up, something was being <laughs> hit up Marcellus's ass, which again is what I was saying earlier. <laughs> this when I talked about it. Marcellus doesn't like to be fucked by anyone but Mrs. Marcellus Wallace. And boy, does is Zed going to pay for what happens in off screen, which I would love to have seen. But I guess it's better not knowing what happens to him. Just what Marcellus says he's going to do. You're like, oh, this isn't going to go well for this motherfucker. Pair of pliers and a blowtorch. Oh, I think was the uh... yes, pair of pliers and a blowtorch. I'm gonna get me evil on your ass. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Oh my god, there's never been a worse threat. He's like, oh, you can't even imagine it. You're like, oh, it's gonna be so fucking bad. What's gonna happen is so fucking bad. Which weapon are you using? Are you taking? He goes hammer, baseball bat, chainsaw, samurai sword. Which of those th four weapons are you using to go back and help Mr. Marcellus? As a big fan of the Evil Dead movies chainsaw is my first kind of thought but it, it feels a bit unwieldy and uh cumbersome i don't think i would have assumed the samurai sword was real so i think i would have gone baseball bat very good yeah the, the chainsaw sounds like the fun one but you only kill maynard and then you get stuck in his body yeah. and then zed gets the gun and you're dead and marcel's dead. so you 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 <laughs> you have failed this mission this boss level you have chosen wrong 
I would have gone with the samurai sword because I love samurai culture, and I would have hoped. Uh, plus, it's pointing longer, so I, I, even if it does, I wouldn't have slashed. I just would have stabbed. Ah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, but but the hammer's a good one too, but only good for Maynard because you're not getting Zed. So the baseball bat or the sword really are the only ones you could use. But you have to crack if you're going to use the bat. You got to crack Maynard, and you run over and you crack what's his name. You don't give him time because he's not standing still and not grabbing the gun because you got a bat in your hand. You know. Yeah, it's. I I think it's. Uh, it's. Uh, it's a swing and then a rugby tackle, I think, is the, the go-to for it. <laughs> All right, so this is like a kind of a rhetorical question, but how badly did you want Butch to leave Fabian when she started crying? He's trying to get out of there. There's a point I was like, you know what? This is that's more cycle. Like, fuck out of here, baby. It's a chopper. I got time for this crying shit. But I do feel bad for her. She's been sitting there for like two and a half hours. She has no idea what's happening. She knows the bad guys are after her. I guess I'm just being mean to her because it's not her fault. I understand her crying. She's been sitting around panicked for a couple of hours, knowing that gangsters are trying to find them, knowing that oh, yeah. he's blaming her for leaving the watch. So she's probably, her nerves are through the roof. That, but for that, us as yeah. the audience, we're just like, bitch, I'm done with this. I don't want to hear you cry. She knows that gangsters are after them and they're going to kill them if they find them. Exactly. So we're so so insensitive. <laughs> and then Bruce Willis just goes missing for three hours. It's uh... and then when he comes back, his shirt's covered in blood. His nose is busted. And he, he can suddenly got walk. a motorbike. <laughs> exactly. I had to crash that Honda, baby. Oh god. That'll lead us to the final part of this film, the Bonnie situation, which technically takes its beginning from Vincent and Jules. So kind of jumps us right in. He's known as the fourth man, or she's known as the fourth man. Um, it's the, God, I forget, uh, Alexis Arquette. Alexis Arquette, she is only titled as the fourth man because they don't even give the, they didn't even give the character a name. Like everyone else had a name, but just titled as the fourth man who comes running out, who, by the way, looks like a young, scared Jerry Seinfeld with his pants down <laughs> in the bathroom when you rewatch the movie, right? Yeah. Holy cow. You're almost like, if you could be almost confused. You could tell somebody, hey, did you see Jerry Seinfeld's in that? People might believe you without knowing. Or if you told me it was like a Seinfeld cousin or something like oh, that. Oh, yes. Like, yeah, yes. no, I see that. Of course it is. Bad aim, got intervention. I, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, well, de- depending, depending if we are going, if it is the soul in the briefcase, Okay, then, I know if we're then, gonna go supernatural, I then, gotcha. we, then we have supernatural. I'll say God's intervention, but I think it's just very nervous aiming and yes, a lot of. I luck. would agree. You don't know this about me. I was in the military here in America, and if you aren't, you know, <laughs> I, I've said this in many podcasts with Americans and their love for guns and it's for home defense. Well, everyone goes to a range, and when you're on a range, you're firing under ideal conditions. No one's shooting at you. Your heart rate isn't up. You don't have fear pumping through your body. You don't have this adrenaline rush. You're not breathing all over the place. So it's a very unrealistic thing when people are like, oh, I need an AK-47 from my home. No, you don't. You're going to kill everyone in your home and probably yourself because you aren't under those kind of conditions. So this guy comes out of the bathroom, scared out of his goddamn mind, trying to keep himself alive. And now while I will say they are close together, so it's really bad if you not hit one of them. <laughs> But I do go with the, the, there's a really good chance that it's bad aim because you can throw or pull bullets, as they say, because your heart rate's everywhere. You're just firing. You're, you're not really concentrating. Like when they shoot him, they are, calm, even though they just got shot, but they're calm. This this is the first time they've had a gun in their face. It's not the first time they've been shot at. It's not the so first time they've shot someone that day. Exactly. So <laughs> in that room. <laughs> five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I go with bad aim and I had, there's some scientific proof behind it, but. Like you said, if you are going to go with the cases full of his uh, soul, 
maybe God's intervention is there. It's just a weird intervention, though. I know, I know people like to say he works in mysterious ways. That's really mysterious because a few minutes later, he doesn't intervene at all. Well, he just, uh, uh, yeah, he, you know, it was accidentally, like, they, they, they greenlit the intervention just, just exactly. off the basis of. For one second. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, well, he said the Bible quote, right? So he's a good guy. So they greenlit yeah. it. And then they did like, exactly. there was like a heaven audit or something. It was like, oh, shit, guys. Oh, it had we, to be. Or it leads to my next point. Maybe because Marvin's a snitch and snitches get ditches. <laughs> He's the inside man. He sells out his amigos. He sells them out for whatever reason. Maybe it's a little divine intervention there as well. Maybe, you know, even God's <laughs> like, I don't like snitches. You snitching ass motherfucker, you're going to die. <laughs> oh, God. It leads to a great point, though. When we first start this movie, right, we, we get enamored with their conversation and all that stuff. And, you know, we, we don't get a whole lot of backstory for either of them except for that little conversation and the, the way they are up there. Uh, we think that pretty much Vincent's a pretty chilled out dude. And Mr. Jules is the guy who's the tough talking shooting guy. As the movie goes on, we then get that whole thing with Mia and we think, oh, God, you know, Vincent's a really nice guy. But if we really look at it, as the movie keeps going on, Vincent's one of the biggest assholes in the fucking film. Someone pointed out that when they were in the truck scene, when Jules gets his weapon, he puts it on safe. Fucking Lash LaRue, fucking Vincent Wildman, he doesn't even put it on safe. He's in the car, still with his finger on the trigger, like, blows fucking poor Martin's head off, which I think he did intentionally. Or, I don't know if it was intentional, but it was just great, the fact that he shoots him. We do find out he's an asshole. I mean, as we get into the next part, Jimmy has his, uh, what's his name, as uh, Jules will say, he made Jimmy's towels look like someone's on their period. Like, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a horror show in the guy's fucking kitchen. And then he get, and then he pisses off the wolf. Like, he is the biggest dickhead as the film kind of goes on. Where we, you know, we're kind of in love with him at first because, oh, he dances and he's got that connection with Mia. And all of a sudden, you know, you feel bad about his car getting key, but now you kind of think, I think this dude deserved so, yeah. everything that came his way. Uh, that 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 towel scene is brilliant as well, because just the and, and then he it's tries so to explain it. It's like, well, I was covered in blood. It's like, well, so was I. Well, if I had some lava, <laughs> that great lady should have done a better job. <laughs> yeah, no, he he, oh, he really God. is. Well, I mean, it, it's a film full of pieces of shit, really. But, no, uh, you're 100 right. But he seems to rise to the top as shit does in the ball. Oh, yeah, he seems yeah, to yeah. rise. The most controversial scene of the movie is in this in this part. Jimmy's storage rant, funny or unnecessary. When it first happened, I laughed my ass off because it's something you don't expect to happen. You don't expect some white suburban man to say the N-word, especially in the context in which he is saying it, mm. to a black man who we have just witnessed murder people for less, for saying what too yeah. many times. You know what I mean? So you're kind of like, Wow. And Part it's... of me thinks he's leaning in, and this happens a lot. I don't know about in your country, but here I've known friends and people who think they have a get-out-of-jail-free card to say the N-word because they are married to someone who mm. is African-American or they have really good friends who are African-American and much more now in the younger group than definitely my age range seem to allow their white friends to say it with the A, but still, I, I, I don't care if you say it with the A or the R, it's, it, to me. It's, yeah. And I have no problem with him using the word, especially when it's used in context with the right people and it's in the pentameter of what people would say anyways. You know what I mean? Like in Django, it makes sense. Like when, yeah, when, uh, Jan, Jan when Jules is saying it, it makes sense. But when Jimmy does it, and I know it's meant for comedic purpose, I don't know. Like, <sighs> Yeah, so re-watching re this the other day was 
I'd forgotten how many completely unnecessary racial slurs are peppered throughout the whole film. Yes. So I, I don't think it was needed in this scene. I don't think it really ties into... If it turns out, like, if, if it was important to the... So if Zed said it, that makes sense. Because Zed's supposed sense, to be yes. a racist guy. But it's Quentin Tarantino. And the problem with him saying it is you then are very aware that he has written <laughs> every word of the film. Lance says it. He says it when they first uh, about being in Inglewood. Is am I an N word? Are we in Inglewood? Yeah. Which that feels more true because again, like I said, this uh, I I don't know the racial stances over in UK. How you know how things transpire? Obviously, ours our racism is on the front pages of newses and it's you can see that they divide. Different, it's especially. different brands of the same thing. Yes. Yeah. And I have you know that it feels like more true because it does feel like something someone would say when two white people are in the safety of their own home, that would be a word like that didn't feel out of place. Jimmy saying it in front of Jules, especially given the context of the nineties. Normally if you had a racist friend, you'd always get this look over the shoulder. You're like, Oh yeah. shit. Whatever you're about to say uh, is, is not going to be good. You know, it used to be that like quiet racism where someone would be like, make sure there's no one of that ethnic group around. And then they would say what heinous thing they came to say anyways. So it was just very strange to see Jimmy and then use the fact that his wife is black is like, hey, it's cool. Like, I highly doubt he says the N-word to his wife. Yeah, it, it felt like, so So this was, uh, so it, it, again, to kind of reference what I was saying before, the casual use of racial slurs is another thing which, you know, with Fabian, I would just kind of cut out of the film. It felt like he was trying to be edgy. And like you said, because it was so out of place, it's difficult to explain it. Um, someone uh, recently said in an interview, couldn't make Pulp Fiction today and was trying to do like a big like, oh, you know, isn't isn't political correctness bad it's like it's not really and like you probably couldn't make pulp fiction today because well you could but jimmy if jimmy was black and they say the same thing it works because it's funny because now it's 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 a black man talking to another black man in uh the vernacular that we all know especially in america you know that's that's just the way people talk to each other that's the way african-americans talk to one another we know this it's it's not like some taboo or some kind of like you know thing that no one knows if it was like marcellus saying this to to jules or vice versa we would have no problem with that because it fit it's in you know the dialogue that would be natural for us to think that that's what a conversation would happen if you know we're in this kind of a tense moment where there is a dead black man in your car without a head you would have this conversation but like why did you think to bring him here you know what i mean like that would be the conversation yeah not from fucking milk toast white jimmy fucking dimmick in the fucking suburbs yeah you, you can play that scene exactly the same and if it was again tarantino likes reusing people so it's jamie fox you know there, there we go that, that that suddenly makes sense but i just <laughs> it, it, for me and again kind of what we spoke about earlier knowing Tarantino or how he's come across in interviews and things before it felt like he was trying to just be edgy and it hasn't you know comedians do that shit all the time where it's like all right I get what you were trying to do but it hasn't really worked and it's probably best we just yeah skirt through it a little bit I think sometimes because he creates such great 
I mean, he does write really great black characters. He does. Like, he, you know, did a, an amazing movie with Django. Like, he creates great black characters, good and bad. Pam Greer gets, you know, Jack Brown. Like, he, he creates movies for African Americans. And he's a white, you know, director. That doesn't happen a lot, you know? So I give him credit there, but sometimes I feel like he's using that cachet to, like, <laughs> you know, slip in, yeah. slip in the N word freely with, with like, a, like some kind of free pass. And it's like, oh, man, like, I'm good with it in your movies if it works, but sometimes it's just, Mm, it feels dangerous. I was talking to a friend of mine who currently is called the Butt Fumble because he, he lost our fantasy league, and uh, <laughs> whoever loses the fantasy league has to be known as the Butt Fumble oh, until the next fantastic. season. There's a nice little pink T-shirt that comes with fantastic. it as well, and it, it's great. But um, I was talking to him about it, and he was saying that. So the direct quote I pulled up the message is almost to the point where it feels like he gets a pass because that's just what he does. Yes, yes, exactly. That's what I was saying. It's like he's got some kind of get out of jail free. Yeah, I get to use the end whatever I want. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's 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 a Tarantino film. That's just how it's written. It's like oh, it doesn't it doesn't fly with me. And I think it, for better or worse, dates the film to the early nineties. Like it, agree, it's, it's, agree. It's unfortunately it is just a thing. From what you were saying as well, like I, I was in researching it, it wouldn't have surprised me to find out that like an actor, it was written for someone else and they couldn't do it, and that's true. I think that it, yeah, because uh, who directed the scene is actually uncredited. Is Robert Rodriguez directs this whole entire scene because yeah. uh, Tarantino said he wanted to be in the scene, he didn't want to be directing, jumping yeah. back and forth, so he trusted only Robert Rodriguez to do it, and he did a fantastic yeah. job. But apparently, they wanted Steve Buscemi for it. Oh, Jesus. But he was, um, I don't know what he would have been doing, but he was unavailable, which is why he just did the cameo instead. Yeah. But yeah, like when reading that it was originally written for someone else, again, I assumed it would have been an African American actor, but it wasn't. It was Steve Buscemi. <laughs> yeah, I know. But Winston fucking Wolf. Should he have his own prequel movie or TV show about him? Like, do you not want to know more about Winston Wolf? He is such, he's one of those characters. I'm just like, I want to know more. We get such a brief moment of him and he's so cool and so amazing. One of my favorite moments is the banter on the phone between Marcellus and Jules. When he's like, oh, you sending the wolf? He's all you happy now, motherfucker. And I won't say he says, yeah, it's all you had to say. We get the level of just, like you said, in that conversation, kind of like when we learned about Mia and her feet. That Winston Wolf is the coolest fucking dude on the planet, you know? I would have loved to see more of him. I think this is just the UK, but you know we have more Winston Wolf. Yes, you get you got commercials he, for me. I he, heard uh, about that. I Winston, know. Winston Wolf sells car insurance. I know, son of a bitch. Great, great adverts, to be fair. But I'm sure yeah, they're amazing. So we did we did get a little bit more of him on our side. But yeah, I, I think he was so he was um again when I was listening, trying to pick my favorite Tarantino character. He was the big one that when I searched through other rankings, it was like, ah, actually, he's yeah, probably up there. Because he's so just... Winston Wolf for me is kind of the... He is the character version of, you know, at the end of a heist movie where they go through all of the twists and turns and everything works out. <laughs> yes, like, they, they, they his entire it, yeah. character is just organizing that. It's like, yes. yeah, I like, I like this. But he organizes it so brilliantly. He's just, <laughs> just so smooth, you know? I mean, he comes in, he drinks some coffee, he takes some shit from what's name, he gets buys a guy an oak furniture, he's spraying people down. It's like, he's just like, boom, boom, boom. It would be I great to just that. see a show about, about him. But no one else could play him. That, again, no, no. Like with a lot of these people, it had to be Harvey Keitel. Uh, 100% agree. He was brilliant in it. Especially at the time, because all of a sudden we were like, oh shit, Mr. White. You know, it's kind of cool to see him as someone else besides, the, you know, the jewel thief. 
Do you trust a man who doesn't like bacon as Jules Winfield doesn't? Uh, I mean, look, if it's a religious choice, I get it. And I like oh, the banter yeah, yeah. back and forth yeah. of pigs are dense. But bacon is, I would eat, I'm not going to lie, I would probably be tempted to eat shit wrapped in bacon. If it's if it's wrapped enough, I I might I might try it. I I love bacon that much. Yeah, yeah. So so the the religious reasons aside, because that's a that's a different. Yes, I oh, agree. Yeah, agree. But, uh, but this isn't a religious yeah. reason why Jules doesn't. Oh eat no, bacon. no 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 yeah yeah. But if you if you consciously made the decision not to eat bacon, I can't. I I don't. <laughs> yeah, we can't. I, talk. I, don't I probably should have asked. I should ask this forever because I'm my pocket. That's an extra question. Do you do you like bacon? I need to know this before you come on. Exactly. But no, I would I would happily eat bacon and I often do every single I love day. It. Love bacon. I, uh, it's, it's amazing. Just, I, I yeah, I could we, we'll, we'll start like a spin-off bacon podcast. I should have just done this. I eat bacon and talk Tarantino. Yeah. All right. So last last bit before we close, we start wrapping this up. Do you shoot honey bunny and pumpkin slash ringo? I guess I should ask from the point of us being Vincent, because obviously Jules has already made his decision and it's a great ending speech. Great, great ending speech. I love how he breaks down his whole Ezekiel 20. Again, you just think it's a throwaway tough guy line. I'm reading the Bible and then he really breaks it down. Love that whole moment. But I'm Vincent. I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> it's well-documented to do this point. Do you shoot Ringo? Actually, would you come out shooting? I guess that's the better point. Do you come out shooting? Because he comes out and just gets into it. He could have very easily have shot Amanda Plummer's character in the back, her never know, and this whole thing is over with. There is no need for a standoff. If we think about it logically, he could have easily just come out, bang, bang, she's dead. Ringo's already got the gun to his face. There's no need for, for any of this. I, I think the only, the only reason why you wouldn't is you have a briefcase full of something, and if you kill them, the police are going to come. So I think coming because yeah, like, basically you're the heroes because you've stopped the robbery. Yeah, and then you, you know to... what? That's an excellent point. That's yeah. So that that that's the, that's the that's the reason I think you wouldn't. But also, Vincent's if it was a shit. video game, you come oh, out shooting, don't you? Oh yeah, it's yeah, a video. Yeah. It's a video. They're dead. Like as soon as, oh, they're, they're as he done. says, Garcon, I'm shooting them. <laughs> or even even if it was another day, there is a chance yeah, they would have come yes. out shooting. Yes, um, if yeah. I, I think because of the briefcase, the priority is getting the briefcase or briefcase out of the diner. But that that entire last scene is this. This is a whole film of you think you've seen the best bit, and then something know, else does, happens. Yeah, it just keeps going. But it's one of the it is one of the strongest endings to a film. Agreed. I think. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, minus the Jimmy Edward scene, which yeah. is meant for being comedic relief, and maybe in the '90s it worked a bit, but obviously today doesn't hold up. But yeah, every. I mean, the dialogue in this. Yeah, there's a lot of violence and stuff. But the just the dialogue scenes, you're just like, oh my god, it's just it's just genius writing. You're just like, holy shit. Like, you know, I'm trying real hard, Ringo. Like when he breaks down the whole an hour earlier, you're like, this is the coolest cold-blooded shit you can ever say to somebody before you kill him. And then he breaks down what he's actually saying, and you're like, holy shit. Like that's people I wish people had introspection like that. You know, oh, yeah. the world may not be as shitty as it is if you could actually have introspection on yourself and realize you're a piece of shit. Be great. But unfortunately, we don't live in that world right now. Yeah, yeah. We need more people like the soon-to-be on walkabout Samuel Jackson. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. What was your favorite song on this amazing soundtrack? You thought Reservoir Dogs is good. And then all of a sudden, Paul Fix comes on. You're like, son of a bitch. He's just one-upping himself. So for, um, I should have got it, but it's going to be in a box somewhere. So for Christmas, my partner got me the Pulp Fiction vinyl oh. um, record, and it is a hell of a soundtrack. And again, mm. like we've, Quentin Tarantino is, 
I don't know which is like the kind of his peak, whether it is casting or whether it is compiling the soundtracks to films. Yeah, no, really, I know. So it was crazy difficult to break it down, but I think it's Son of a Breacher Man. Excellent. The way that even kicks in when yeah. he meets her. I mean, that's just genius. The door opens. It's yeah, it every time. But it's you you know it's you know it's a good song or a good song choice in a film if there is no no other song would make that scene. No, I effective. agree with you. I can't think of another song. Like first time seeing it, I'd never heard Son of a Preacher Man until I saw that scene. And the minute I saw it, I was automatically in love with that song. It was kind of like yeah. a stuck in the middle with you. Hadn't don't remember yeah. hearing that song prior to, but from that moment on, anytime I hear that song, wherever it may be. I immediately think I'm walking into the Wallace residence and I'm going to go find, you know, pick up Mia Wallace or a date. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like the other one, I'm ready to cut someone's ear off. You know what I mean? So the two of them, <laughs> different contexts. But, and there's a lot of the songs in that film just like that. For me, it's even uh, Al Green's, even though it's in the background of when Butch is meeting Marcellus. Even the Kangaroo song by the uh, Everly Brothers, or not the Everly Brothers, but the song that Butch is listening to when he's when he's just got done killing, right before he runs yeah, yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe I can't remember the names of the songs right now, but even that song, like, I'd never heard that song before. And now when, whenever he does Captain Kangaroo, I do the same thing Bruce Willis does. Like, I'm just like, Captain Kangaroo, you know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. The soundtracks yeah, that, that. really do become a part of your DNA once once you see the movie. Well, yeah, definitely. And again, when when they are so tailored to what's happening, the dance contest, I can't imagine it with any other song. I know. And never can I think tell. Mia said she didn't like the song. Not Mia. Yeah. <laughs> Uma Thurman didn't like it. And Tarantino just said, trust me. I mean, that's confidence. Yeah. Some would call it cockiness, but it's confidence. When you're confident, you know what's going to happen. And he's 100% right. Because when you say it's a twist contest, you're thinking, here comes Chubby Checkers the twist. And they break out the Chuck Berry song. And you're like, yeah, this absolutely, I mean, absolutely fucking works. Hundred percent. But it was yeah. So, so Son of a Preacher Man for me is the is the best song on that. Both I think individually and how it's used. Amazing soundtrack. Now this I thought I knew the answer to this one, but now I think there might be a battle between two people. What's your favorite character from the film? Uh, yeah. So it's it's, it's Jules. Okay. Because you said <laughs> something about Winston. I thought originally Jules. Winston. But then when you had your little uh, monologue about Winston, I thought, oh well, maybe this this could be a, a fight. Yeah. So so Winston, I'd, I'd probably put second. Um, but Jules for me, because it, well, 90% of the time when Samuel Jackson's in a film, your favorite character is Samuel Jackson. He is so goddamn really? good. God, it's, he is, we'll he see. is a bad motherfucker. Like he yeah. truly is a bad motherfucker. He is just awesome. Similar with kind of what we were saying about Nicolas Cage. Samuel Jackson has been in some shit films, he but, he, but he has never been shit in a film. No, I, I agree with you. I 100% agree with it, you. Yes. Re regardless of what he's in, he always gives 100%. Even and his fucking I have commercials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even yeah, his yeah. commercials are good in them. What was your favorite line of, or monologue from the film? And please go ahead and give us the, the speech. I couldn't narrow it down from two. If you want to so, do two, I, I mean, at this point, we're coming up on seven hours. So why not just do it? <laughs> yeah. So um, the the entire Captain Coons three, four minutes of him talking about the watch. The gold um, watch. Like I said before, just to cherry pick the phrase, five long years, he wore this watch up his ass. Then when he died <laughs> of dysentery, he gave me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable piece of metal up my ass for two years. Then after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now, little man, I give the watch to you. It's so funny. <laughs> it's, but it's so it's so childish as well. Yes. Like it's it's so weirdly out of place, but entirely fits the tone of the film. Yeah, you're wearing something your ass, haha, it's funny. But in the context of why, you go, all right, that actually makes sense. Like it makes sense. Like it would be confiscated. How do you not confiscate something? You hide it up your ass. Like it just 
it totally works. If it had been somewhere else, if they had been in a prison camp, it would be like, why would you put it up your ass? But it makes <laughs> yeah. complete fucking sense because he's in a prison camp. He's been watching his ass. Yeah. Not putting it up his ass, like you said. He's wearing, wearing it up his ass. His... <laughs> um, and then any of you fucking pricks move, and I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. So it fucking is. good. Oh. I, was, I was trying to find a song that starts with that quote and then drops into like a disgustingly heavy guitar riff. Uh, That is from the fun loving criminals, Scooby snacks. At at least here in America. I I don't know if it's, but yes, Uh, fun loving criminals came out with that. They they steal from Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs at the time. Cause there's also, I need you cool. You're cool. And you have Mr. Pink run over and kick the thing. Go, all right, I'm cool. They have that a couple of times. Yeah. There's at least two or three little clips from both those movies in there. Yeah. So there's that. And it's been used in other stuff as well. And like I was saying, this popped up on a random D and D podcast. I was listening to, it is referenced everywhere and it is just such a badass line it's and amazing it is, de- it's amazing. It is delivered perfectly yes. as well and it is and again like if you're starting a film with that it's like right and well, then it kicks here. into that heavy uh surf music and you're like you're like okay let's do this yeah. last but not least what was your favorite scene from this film which is like asking if you had like five kids which one are you keep and the rest are gotta go it's a very tough uh, question to come and answer with yeah so it was it was very difficult to narrow it down i think for some reason i am a massive fan of marvin accidentally getting shot in the face like it that, makes that, me that laugh whole car journey of just and of uh, the way john travolta delivers the line of i just it's, it's the same way you would it's how you would talk to your mum if you accidentally smashed a glass on the floor and it's just like, i accidentally shot marvin in the face <laughs> it's just <laughs> It's completely unexpected. Yeah. And it is so funny. Next time you watch it, give a listen to Samuel Jackson's reaction. So forever, I'm just like you. You wait for the just the the deadpan, like, oh shit, did that just really happened response from John Travolta, and it cracks you up. As the gun fires and the blood hits him, Samuel Jackson's like, oh fuck, what the hell's happening? Like he's like, what the fuck's <laughs> going on? Like he's like, what the fuck's happening here? Why, why is this happening? His reaction nowadays, and I see it, it makes me laugh just as much as John Travolta because his reaction is so genuine and watching them in this scene be able to go back and forth with each other because i mean they're acting and it's so hard to act if you've never i mean who blows someone's head off in a car and keeps driving how do you get into that as a character it's the bickering as well because he's like well you must have gone yeah. over a pothole it's like, i didn't yeah, go over, over a pothole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this was this was your fault yes i told it's, you john is the biggest asshole yeah. in the yeah. movie but it, it could it could have been so many different things but i i that scene for me is it, it, it's just so good and again similar to the opening diner scene it is a perfect just encapsulation of what uh, that's called fiction that's exactly what it is And that's a wrap on our fourth episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Ian Harris of the podcast Nobody Asked For, for not only joining me today, but for creating our sweet new fucksgiving jingle. I had a fucking blast discussing all of Nicolas Cage and QT, as well as taking a deep laugh-filled dive into the greatest film ever made, Pulp Fiction. Now, you can find the link to his podcast, the podcast no one asked for, as well as the show's socials and website in the show notes. 
And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can also be found in the show notes as well. Now be sure to join me again in two weeks as Craig Cohen, musician and podcast host of Conversations from Jack Rabbit's Lens, the Slycast and Big Screen Book Club, who will be stopping by for not one, but two Tarantino Bible studies this month. He'll be sitting down with me to dissect and discuss the adrenaline shot scene and the gimp scene from Pulp Fiction. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.